Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we talk about the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Plata, and Epi is laughing at me. <laughs> I'm, I'm Epi Diarabish, who's trying to get through his lunch as fast as possible. <laughs> I would invite our listeners to join us for some food this mm-hmm. episode. It's a long one. Yeah, perhaps a taco. Yeah. Maybe a pizza. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. This is a long one for we are talking about season six, two parter episodes three and four. Only rock and roll will never die. Mm-hmm. That's a great title. It is a good title. It is just awkward enough to make me think about it. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's going to involve rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, of course, is directed by William Wired, and it is the final episodes episodes. So I'll say episodes because Unlike some other two-parters, this one was aired as two individual episodes. All right. As opposed to, for example, um, Lions, Tigers, Monkeys, and Dogs, which Mm was a 90-minute episode that was split into two for syndication. Yeah. Or some of the other ones. So this is more like, uh, if I'm remembering right, this is more like Gear Jammers, where it's it was conceived of and originally produced as two discrete episodes. Um, but yes, these episodes are directed by William Wired. Uh, our final consideration in our summer of Wired, adventuring across the Wired verse. Yes. Oh, this is his final Rockford Files as well, right? We ended. Um, or did, no, no. He has one later on. Yes, he has one later on. His final uh, contribution is again in airing order. I don't recall mm-hmm. the you know recording order, um, but his final contribution would be the Hawaiian headache, right? Which we did, and that one would have been the final recording one because that was like a big cast party kind of yeah, situation. The Hawaiian headache episode sixty nine. The Hawaiian headache. Yeah, back from April twenty sixth, twenty twenty. Oh, what wow. a what an innocent <laughs> time. <laughs> Ooh, doggies! Can can I even think back that far? Wow. Yeah. Uh, if I, again, if I'm vaguely remembering what I think you are also vaguely remembering the mm-hmm. so the final episode that aired as season six in season six was uh, Deadlock and Parma, but the that season was cut short because of James Garner's injuries and having to to stop um, doing the show so he could recover and the Hawaiian headache was the last one shot and it was the like we're all going to hawaii for a shoot Mm -hmm. party atmosphere but then it aired you know earlier in the i think it's the second to last episode maybe somewhere there yeah anyhow this is our last uh look at the 26 episodes that william wired directed though that includes these two parters as two discrete episodes so like you know maybe 22 including the two parters that were one episode i don't know yeah hard to count we stick by what IMDb says, just so we have a point of reference. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what IMDb says. This one is written by David Chase, and uh, I feel like it's real chasey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bringing in a lot of the elements that I, you know, associate with this, you know, interest in these, like, little interior psychodramas in context of these larger plot arcs of like what's actually happening like that kind of it's it's uh yeah feels feels chasey um yeah i don't really have a lot to say background wise on this so here's the thing i've op- i've i have an opening statement on this one oh okay in addition to being a two-parter, so, you know, being a lot to, you know, mm-hmm. twice as much as usual to to watch and, and do 
do notes on. There is some quality of this episode that I found a little fatiguing. Okay. Um, there's something about, there's a lot of references. Like there's a lot of mm. references to actors, references to show, to, like, like pop culture references, like contemporaneous ones, right? Um, and they were going by so fast. I just was like, I just gave up. I was like, I can't look at yeah. what all these things are. Like I recognize very few of them. We're not a, an Archer podcast. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, I was just like, I, I, I can't. So there's a lot of stuff that probably flew over my head because I just don't know the reference. Um, mm-hmm. And doing additional research on the episode, I just, nothing really popped out to me on the initial look look around, and I just didn't have it to do any deeper look. So, <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. So I got nothing. I got nothing to say before we get into our premium <laughs> montage is what I'm saying. My cursory research in, in that I, I'm just now looking at the um, IMDb and uh, they say that the the center, the story uh, is based on a real life case between Lee Marvin and his living girlfriend. So the thing about this episode is that it it's hard to get a grip on what the mystery is. Yeah, yeah. Rockford is hired to find a missing bandmate of, of this rock and roll star. Uh, and why this person's missing and why Rockford is hired, I feel is more mercurial than it <laughs> usually is. Yeah. I, I remember thinking, I watched these over two days because mm-hmm. I just didn't have the solid chunk of time to do them all in one sitting. Uh, because that's the way they were meant to be watched. Right, right. Um, and I finished the first one and I was like, all right, I can't wait to watch the next one to find out what that was about. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. like, what are we doing here? I'm not going to say that this is a particularly bad episode or anything like that, but I, I vibe with your fatigue on it. Okay. Let's okay. Say, let's yeah. Say. I was curious. I didn't want to, I didn't want to bring it up pre pre discussion. Cause I was curious about your, if you had a similar experience or not. Cause I, I I'm totally open to it. Just being me being in a weird mood. I did right. watch it not in one sitting, but I did watch it over. Like I watched one in the morning and took a break. And then I watched the second one. I wasn't like in a bad mood or anything, but I think I, I just was kind of like, yeah. Felt a little bit like, okay, let's get through the, the rest of this show. I could totally see the the necessity to do it for a podcast. Right. In this case, might have might have impinged a little bit of my thing. I think another part of it was that like I just had a lot of trouble with everyone. Like the names are all really just normal people names, and I kept on losing track <laughs> of who was named what. There's only like three people you need to remember, but for some reason I just kept on forgetting which who was who. I, I'm coming into this recording, our conversation a little mm-hmm. like, hmm. So maybe, well, maybe you can talk me out of it because there's a lot of good stuff in this, in this, in this episode or these two episodes. I'll, I'll be the cheerleader for this episode then. Well, like I said, uh, I don't really have a whole lot of extra stuff to say about it before we get into it. So we should go ahead and talk about our uh, relatively brief preview montage for the first episode. What I got out of it, um, I really appreciate the uh, reporter giving us the background. Okay, well, I'm already going to get into this. There is a larger story at work here. There's a rock star who is being sued by his long-term living girlfriend right. for her half of his fortune because they were as if married. Right, and her... Her claim is that she was never able to successfully have her acting career because of his influence. Yeah. And since 
he kept her from making her own money. She is suing him for half of his money. So we get this told to us in the preview montage by a reporter. And then we'll get that reporter, because it is a a preview montage, we'll get that reporter delivering it again. (laughs) That same scene several times over the course of two days of episodes. (laughs) Uh, And it's kind of important because it otherwise is not important until the end. Mm -hmm. It's preparing you for things you're going to need to know for the quiz at the end. (laughs) Sure, yeah. so I just wanted to make a statement about that. And then we got lots of good rock and roll haircuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, a lot of good rock and roll lifestyle stuff in this episode. Uh, I'm really enjoyed. Uh, a hint that the mob is involved. Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, but you already said David Chase was <laughs> written this. Uh, and we get Rockford, like, uh, this joke in the montage cut where he's like, I'm off the case or whatever. And then there's, uh, there's a gunshot. And um, we see a piece of the... Uh, trailer go down right mm-hmm. like his awning gets shot which um is kind of a rare rare thing <laughs> for for that but yeah that's what i got out of the preview montage and the main thing that jumped out to me was that we see uh one of our longtime favorites mm. anthony boy but not anthony boy george loros playing a different kind of uh emotionally not complex fractured emotionally yeah. fractured person in Jim's life. Uh, he's going to be a protagonist in this one, as opposed to the uh, Anthony boy character that we saw in um, the man who saw the alligators. Yeah. But seeing his face was very exciting. This is a, this is a fun character too, but no, he's a fun character. Yeah. Great actor though. I mean, like I, I really enjoy. Um, oh, he's so fun. Yeah. Yeah. 200 a day is a 100% listener supported show. Thanks to our patrons. In addition to our gratitude and editing access to our 200 Files Files spreadsheet, patrons receive exclusive episode previews and plus expenses. Our bonus just chatting podcast about media, work, and life. We expend special thanks to our gumshoe patrons supporting this episode. Brian Burnson has a Facebook page where he drives his Rockford tribute car to shooting locations from the show. Check out facebook.com slash Brian Rockford Files. Join Mitch Hampton to examine all matters aesthetic at the Journey of an Aesthete podcast. And Paul Townend recommends the podcast Fruit Loops, Serial Killers of Color. You can find these shows wherever you get your podcasts. Dale Norwood wrote a book. It's about fast ships, cheap drugs, and American political economy, published by the University of Chicago Press. Find Trading Freedom, How Trade with China Defined Early America, wherever good books are sold. Chuck from whatyourreading.com. Shane Liebling has all of your online dice rolling needs sorted at his site rollforyear.party. And check out Jayadon's amazing miniature painting skills at jayadon.com. In addition, thanks to Andre Apignani, Tom Clancy, Pumpkin Jabba Peach Bug, Dave P., Dave Otterson, Kip Holly, Dale Church, and Colleen Kelly. And finally, special appreciation for our detective-level patrons. Joe Greathead, Michael Zalisco, Eric Antenor at Antenor on Twitter, Brian Pereira at Thermoware, Jordan Bockelman, not Brockelman, at Jordan Bockelman, Bill Anderson at BillAnd88, and of course, Richard Haddam at Richard Haddam. If you're interested in keeping us going for as little as $1 an episode, check out patreon.com slash 200 today to see if becoming a patron is right for you. Starting our first episode of our two-parter uh as you say we start right off with this tv reporter Mm -hmm. but the frame for the frame is that rocky is watching the six six o'clock tv news and this report about the trial is in the middle of a block of 
if it bleeds, it leads kind yeah. of stuff. And Rocky, uh, this scene shows Rocky like addicted to this. Yeah, presaging. Yeah, the it's modern a great condition. Commentary. Yeah, on uh, on uh, a lot of things like uh, uh, Facebook and <laughs> Fox News, Fox like, kind News, of stuff. Yeah, yeah for yeah, sure, it's good. And there's the development of cable news. Yeah, um, it's one of those things where you kind of think of that as like, oh, this is how things are now. But you see these things mm-hmm. as far back as, you know, the 70s. And people clearly were already trying to make commentary about the nature of of, of infotainment. Uh, yeah, not infotainment, <laughs> of news as entertainment. Jim certainly doesn't approve of the situation. Jim does not approve. There's a lot of disapproving in this scene. Mm-hmm. So we learn about the lawsuit. Uh, Diane Bjornstrom is the girlfriend and the rock star is tim ritchie from a band called the suspects but now on his solo career mm-hmm. rocky has this kind of confused set of um opinions opinions about this whole thing because he's saying whatever happened to people just standing up and saying i do right but then he's also saying uh he has the line this guy this rock star he's all painted and gussied up like a madam <laughs> which he also seems to not approve of uh and so jim first of all jim is snacking on chips as rocky watches the news which is very fun i i need to make a comment about this these chips more specifically, the salsa. This is a three-act joke for Effie. Mm-hmm. This is act one, where Jim puts the chip in the salsa and then taps the chip. Like, he, he inserts mm-hmm. it vertically and taps it to remove the salsa from the chip and then eats it. Well, you don't want too much salsa. Oh, but it just... I was like... my I mean, my notes are like, get some salsa on that chip, Jim. <laughs> uh, this will come up again. But Jim says, well, if they were married, she'd be mm-hmm. entitled to half under California law. Hence giving us why there's a whole lawsuit about it, right? And then Rocky's saying that's his point. If you said it. If she'd been married. Now, they could have been married, but they weren't. Now she wants to be reimbursed for living like a strumpet. Oh, hey, Dad, she's not my idea of a great date, but what are you bucking for? The Cotton Mather Award? (laughs) Yeah, it's good. So I feel like this is the weird... It's not weird out of character. It's Mm -hmm. Rocky has this weirdly conflicted set of values where he's like, I don't approve of any of this Mm -hmm. for various different reasons. There's no reason for Rocky to have opinions about these people's lives. And and he does. And I think that is very central to like this whole like Rocky's addicted to this television thing. Right. Rocky mentions, well, but aren't you working for this guy? And Jim is going to be hired by him. Mm -hmm. And he's been brought in but it's on a missing persons thing not a domestic case because as you know jim doesn't work domestic cases (laughs) then it turns to a story about an apartment fire and this is when jim scolds rocky every night you plug into this litany of misery (laughs) nobody's telling you to watch you're just making yourself unhappy yeah and then he leaves and then there's a beat and then rocky turns back to the tv The announcer is talking about the charred remains and just a smile grows over Rocky's lips. Yeah. I mean, like, this is absolutely a commentary. This is like, yeah, this stuff is, 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 uh, I don't know if Rocky's age is part of the commentary or it's just, you know, Rocky is. Rocky is kind of the everyman in these kinds of situations, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. So Jim goes off to, to learn about this job. Uh, so we watch the firebird pull into a literal castle. Mm hmm. 
So this I was curious about, and our our, uh, our source, Rockford Files Filming Locations.blogspot.com, does have something about it. You do have to scroll past a lot of commentary about how attractive all the women in this episode are, which is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah take that for for what it is but this was a castle <laughs> in malibu mm-hmm. this was a private residence that was built um in the early 70s i guess and uh was destroyed by a fire in 2007 mm. so the uh blogspot article reproduces a news story about it that says that the castle filled with paintings and elvis presley memorabilia was one of several homes of socialite philanthropist Lily Lawrence, known as Princess Lily. Castle <laughs> Cashin, oh, with a K, was named after the village of her father, Reza Fala, a former Iranian oil minister. So there's a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it was built in 19... Oh, so it had just been built. It was built in 1978 wow. uh, by a doctor, Thomas Hodges. Oh, it's... Yeah, and then it has a, some lines about television shows such as The Rockford Files were shot there, and it's available to rent for weddings, um, etc. Princess Lily bought it in 1998. Oh, okay. So that would have been later. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, it is a great location, though. Oh, yeah. It's it's incredible. Recently, we've gotten a few rock stars on The Rockford Files, right? Not real, but like, mm-hmm. like we just did the shot to fame country music star. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heartaches of a Fool. Yeah. Yeah. But this... This one is is very much the disposable income mm-hmm. situation. Like it, it, yeah. We have language later about how basically this guy's the 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 band, mm-hmm. the suspects. They got famous very early, and he's been a millionaire since he was like eighteen or something like that. Yeah, I mean, and I guess from the suit, we know that apparently he's worth thirty million dollars, right? Because mm-hmm. she's suing him for half of his of his yeah. net worth. Um. Okay. So anyway, the Firebird pulls into a castle. Yes. Um, <laughs> and a wild George Loros appears. <laughs> he's yelling for Jimmy and he's wearing a bowling shirt that says Car Town Cannonballs on the back. <laughs> this is important later. It is. Uh, I actually had thoughts about it and they explain it. So that's great. This is Eddie. And mm-hmm. Eddie is a old prison buddy of Jim's. So we established that with some uh, banter up top. Eddie works for... This guy, this rock star, Richie, um, he's a little vague about what he does. It kind of comes out. I mean, he's basically kind of a gopher. Yeah, he, he calls himself a uh, personal security analyst or something like that. He was hired a year and a half ago when Richie saw Eddie throw a guy through a plate glass window <laughs> while he was bouncing at a bar that uh, he was performing at. And now, yeah, he's a personal security analyst. But he says he he's around him when he's traveling. He... Runs errands for him. Yeah. That kind of stuff. There's a gag about the cars in this giant front area. There's this row of, like, incredible sports cars. What, do you got a used car lot here? Ah, Tim, he just loves cars. He just can't seem to find one to fill all his needs. Yeah, he likes to tinker with them, huh? No, he hates engines and things like that. He doesn't even like to drive. Why? (laughs) Eddie trails off when we see a woman in a magenta dress walk Mm -hmm. across the parking lot, totally loses his train of thought, and then comes back to to bring Jim in to meet Tim Ritchie. More about her later. Yes. But it's it's very clear that he's, uh, there's something. Yeah. Something up here. It's a bit of a uh, Looney Tunes, a Wooga Eyes kind of moment. (laughs) Um, so inside we meet Tim Ritchie. Uh, he is played by Christopher Tabori. 
This is the first place where I started getting kind of exhausted because a lot of write-ups or mentions of this episode mention the rock star played by Christopher Tabori, who's mm-hmm. the son of, I mean, who is an actor and a director in his own right, mm-hmm. but who is referred to in all these write-ups as the son of the director, Don Siegel, who directed Dirty Harry, ah. among other things, including the 56 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So I started going down this rabbit hole of like, and I just... I'm not finding anything here that's actually that interesting to me. <laughs> well, so I was I was trying to see like is this someone that like I should know who this is and maybe I should, but uh I hit a wall pretty quick. He is heir to the Baskerville uh fortune in The Return of Sherlock Holmes, which is the uh uh Grenada Sherlock Holmes series starring uh Jeremy Brett uh as Sherlock Holmes. The definitive Sherlock Holmes. I, I will fist fight any human being on this planet. There is one Sherlock Holmes, and it's Jeremy Brett. Yes, I know about Basil Rathbone. Yes, I know about <laughs> Eggs Benedict. I but Jeremy Brett is, Benedict. is just <laughs> okay. You should I, like. I highly recommend the Sherlock Holmes um, with a, with the caveat that they they came out in the eighties uh, and. They decided to do some episodes of the original Sherlock Holmes stories that were not particularly sensitive mm. and then also were not particularly sensitive uh, themselves. So there's a few that are like, mm. anyways, the point is this guy plays uh, <laughs> heir to the Baskerville. And so the whole time I'm watching this, I'm like, how do I know this guy? How do I know this guy? And I think I mentioned to you earlier that I watched uh Columbo goes to the guillotine. Right. And for some reason, I confused in my head that, oh, this is coincidentally the same actor, but a decade later. But it's not. Anyways. Okay. Rabbit hole fulfilled. Yes. (laughs) Tim Ritchie is the rock star. Um, He's he's hustling out various. He clearly has various hangers on. He's he's uh, getting them out of the way so he can talk to. Eddie and Jim, he asks if Eddie has explained their problem, and Jim says, not yet. I still don't know anything. What do you want? Richie is worried about a business associate of his, mm-hmm. Brian Charles, who seems to have disappeared. So he was his bandmate in The Suspects. Uh, he produced his current LP, Renegade Lotion. Such a good day. <laughs> Uh, they had a business lunch a week ago and he didn't show and Richie hasn't heard from Brian since. This is we now get appearance of one of my favorite parts of the episode. Yes. The manager, Ronnie Martz. He is played by Lenny Baker. This guy is a hell of a screen presence. He's, yes, he's skinny. He's, he's all limbs. He's all limbs. He has this really kind of raspy voice. Yeah. Really frenetic kind of eyes, like d- just a real weirdo kind of presence. If it's acting, he's brilliant. <laughs> if it's not, he was well, very well cast. Exactly. Yeah. But he has this way of like looking at someone and you, you could, you can hear the gears grinding in his head. Mm-hmm. Whereas he tries to sum up whether that person is a threat to him <laughs> and what he should do about that. And it's just, I mean, it's really kind of hard to explain, uh, except to, to watch the episode and experience mm-hmm. it. But yeah, he is one of my favorite bits of this episode too. He also has great outfits. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Oh, what else has this guy done? I would like to see more of him. 
And yeah. unfortunately, he has, I mean, he was he did a lot of stage uh, stage acting as well, but he has kind of limited TV credits. He actually he died um, really young. He was 37 of wow. AIDS related cancer, which is a real shame. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking through his his stuff. And I it's been a it's been a hot minute since I saw the paper chase, but that probably would be <laughs> the only thing that I would have seen him in. Like I'd love to see him in more of a role like this, and I bet he was just like a one off background yeah. guy and, and stuff. So anyway, yeah. he's great. I'm glad we, we get to see him. Um so the manager Ronnie, uh there's some stuff going on that I made notes about because I thought they'd, it'd be important later and it wasn't. So whatever. But there is the beginning of a running gag where he <laughs> says that his 450 is in the shop. So he needs a ride to get the. T- there's these two twins that are rollerblading around to take the twins to Chinatown to see like a place that has this new wave band or something. Yeah. So the, the idea of the 450 is one that will continue mm-hmm. coming back. Um, he. He sees he's, he's introduced <laughs> to Jim and he's like, "Oh, you're the investigator. Don't you wear a hat? Don't PIs wear hats? Big brims? Maybe you're thinking of the pilgrims. No. Ah, bogie. He always wore a hat. If you'd like to take a couple of hours and go out and find me one, it'll be okay with me." It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Um, he asks Tim if he's told Bogey that Brian's had a junk problem off and on. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tim says, well, right now it's off. Um, Jim starts to turn down the job. He says it's not his kind of gig. He's trying to leave. And Richie says, I don't understand. We hired that PI in Rome for what? Two grand a week? For that kind <laughs> of money, you should do what you advertise. And Jim, well, I can see your point. <laughs> I'll see if I can rearrange my schedule and squeeze in a week for you. Mm-hmm. There's a phone call. Eddie escorts Jim out to give him more background. Uh, we get the, the mention of the 450 in the shop. Nice bicentennial phone. That must just be sitting around from the bicentennial because we're now past the yeah, yeah. That, that year. But yes. I, we have to just mention the accoutrements in this castle here because he's there's a gumball machine. There's pinball machines. There's roller skates everywhere. I just, it's a delightful little playhouse. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> mm. All right. So outside, uh, we get some more background. Um, mm-hmm. Brian and Tim Ritchie were having some trouble, creative differences, you would call it. Ritchie did the unthinkable and put a disco cut on Renegade Lotion, <laughs> a song called Migraine or Yours, which is pretty good. I love it, all these titles. <laughs> um Brian is an old school rock and roller, thinks disco is a fad and a blight. Um, there's uh, another moment where it's like, oh, I never got you the picture. He's supposed Eddie's been supposed to give Jim the, a picture of Brian for like three conversations now, and he keeps on mm-hmm. forgetting. So he goes back inside to get this picture. And then our woman in magenta returns. <laughs> uh, she is a reporter named Whitney Cox. She is played by Marsha Strassman, who, again, I feel like, is mentioned in many of the IMDb reviews and uh, summaries of this. And I'm like, I don't know who this is. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, she's been in stuff I've seen. I just don't particularly yeah, she... recall. She was Julie Cotter on Welcome Back, Cotter, which I think is where mm. people would know. I have never watched Welcome Back, Cotter, so I don't know. Oh, she uh, she returns for one of the TV movies. Yeah, she's um the psychologist. 
just there's the one with um, right. Chapman where Jim goes back to take the class. Yeah, he has to get her approval to mm-hmm. do it for your generation. Mm-hmm. She's the mom from the Honey I Shrunk yes. the series. Yeah, yeah. She's also uh, a voice actor on uh, Real Monsters, which is ah. the place I would know her from. <laughs> Anyway, uh, she's fun. She definitely has fun chemistry with Jim. Um, the character is actually, uh, yeah, the character is a lot of fun. I didn't expect the character to be fun in the way the character is, but yeah. Anyway, so she's a reporter. She's working on a story for Knickerbocker magazine, um, a three-part uh, special on Richie. The most sensual man of his time. That's right. Um, she asks him if he's the PI and he's kind of noncommittal. Yeah. Then when Eddie comes back, that's when he says that she's a reporter <laughs> and Jim has this great, I would never have known you were a reporter if, if nobody had told me. <laughs> yeah. Eddie, Eddie comes back and starts this pattern of just telling her absolutely everything. Yeah. Despite the fact that Jim is clearly not trying to tell her absolutely everything. Jim, Jim has this instinctive don't talk to reporters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, line in this, which I don't know if that's always how he acts, but in this, I mean, it, it's important for this plot. Yeah. I think this case is definitely a, uh, he would be uh, on his guard about this. Yeah. Big high profile client. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, his, her thesis for her story is that the old school macho cowboy is over and Tim Ritchie is the sexual bellwether and prototype of the future, <laughs> including that line, the most sensual man of his time. Um, she asked Eddie if he can fix the flash on her camera. And so he's like, oh, yeah, I can do that right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he tells Jim to go on ahead. They were going to go to Brian's place yeah. to check it out. Uh, and, and Eddie said, I've been there. I didn't see anything. And Jim wants to see it for himself. Uh, so he tells Jim to go on ahead of him. He'll catch up later. And he hur- hurries off to fix Whitney's camera flash. So we are now 14 minutes and 51 seconds into the episode, and that's when our credits begin. So (laughs) coming from the first season again, this is a big, like, you know, we don't need to hold anyone's hand. Like, you're here to watch Mm -hmm. this show. Uh, We're all we all know what we're getting ourselves into here. There's uh, like a rock music cut yeah under the the credits and the lyrics are kind of all about like watching someone else from across the room waiting to be seen find who it was i was i was hoping to i did look into it a little bit and yeah i guess this is kind of a you know tv production thing since there doesn't seem to be any additional music credit noted this Mm -hmm. was probably mike post oh okay yeah they just do record whatever they with some like studio musicians or something. He said his name and the night court theme just popped into my head. He did that, didn't he? <laughs> I'm uh, sure he maybe, did. Maybe. Probably. Uh, so yeah, the there's this and I think there's another. And there's uh, various like chunks of presumably Richie's music. Like this is supposed to be Tim Richie's song yeah right? uh throughout the show and i think they're all like people playing it on radios and stuff and that's yeah. all um yeah post post and carpenter but i think uh, i'm sure i could look this up I, I think it's kind of a huggins cannell situation where like yeah it's a huggins cannell show but huggins left and it was cannell's show i think music by post and carpenter was the yeah. original music and then i think michael post basically did the music like <laughs> for the actual show but i could be wrong about that i'm sorry if i'm wrong about that but that's <laughs> that that's my impression that i'm not going to take more time to go look up right now he he's not night court oh okay 
So I'm wrong. I'm wrong. <laughs> We're wrong all over the place. <laughs> so we have the, the, the credits and this music play as we watch Jim checking out Brian's place and Eddie poking around with the flash and the camera. There's a good match cut from Eddie using the screwdriver to mm-hmm. try and do something with the flash to Jim picking the lock at mm-hmm. Brian's uh, house or apartment. I guess house. He's looking around. He finds all these things and like the camera shows us them so that we know they're important. There's a ticket book with a plane ticket for a flight to Geneva. Mm -hmm. I did note that it was uh, with tax. It was a $621 ticket, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, given inflation. Yeah, that's. That's a lot. Flying became such a commodity over time yeah. that it's easy to forget <laughs> that it was actually very expensive for some of these flights at the time. Anyway, finds a woman's nightgown, mm-hmm. finds a broad-brimmed hat, and he almost puts it on, <laughs> and then kind of shakes his head, and we're like, ah, uh, uh. we're getting there. And then he picks up a something that seems to stick out a bright red pack of moon cigarettes with <laughs> some uh, some characters on them. I thought they were Chinese characters because earlier they've been talking about going to Chinatown and I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is going to be a thing. Uh, they're Japanese characters. It's about something else. One of the many things where I was like, oh, this is going to be a thing and then it yeah. was not. This is, this is definitely uh, PI senses. There is camera work that indicates it's a clue. Yeah. But there, there's no um, diegetic anything that indicates it's a clue right 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 it's just rockford going these are a weird brand of cigarettes i bet you that means something mm-hmm. uh which is what i would do if i were playing the video game <laughs> yeah they have the little glowing aura around them so you, know yeah, you can exactly. click on them <laughs> he hears a noise so by now the 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 credits have finished and the and the music has come down jim hears a noise he goes back outside he trips on a piece of fence and mm-hmm. kind of falls down into the dirt and then this is such a weird frame, and I guess it makes sense later, but I just was like, what is going on? Yeah. We zoom out a little bit so that Jim's in the bottom of the frame, and then a rock just falls out of the corner onto the back <laughs> of his head. Cut to commercial. Yeah. It's not to, not to get too critical here, but same thing with me. I was watching it, and I was like, I knew what the intention was that Jim was knocked unconscious by a rock. Yes. Uh I'm putting that together. It's the, the show didn't didn't hand that to me. Uh, instead, I'm like, that's probably what happened. Mm. And we get that when we get back. But yeah. yeah. And there's this weird comedic sense to it to me. Yeah. Because it would have been a brutal way to knock him unconscious, right? Because it right. wasn't held by anyone. So it was thrown. So the framing is intentionally so that we don't see whoever through the rock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fine. That is a mystery. We don't know. Yeah. Someone knocked Jim out with a rock. But because it looks like it just falls into the frame, which it yeah. does, as we learn later, it it's a mystery that doesn't actually mean anything. <laughs> yeah, It's a layer of obfuscation that I think ends up being meaningless mm-hmm. in the end, I guess. But again, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it. <laughs> we do learn that it knocks him out because when we come back from commercial, he's putting the ice in a hand towel on his head. Yeah. Or at least it hurt him enough to... To, to need to reduce his swelling with ice, not heat. Exactly. That's what you do. Uh, the phone rings. Eddie is calling. He got caught up fixing the camera. He had to take it down to the photo mat. <laughs> One of Eddie's qualities is that he gives all the details that you don't need to know. Right. <laughs> so the uh, one of the battery cells had leaked and it corroded a contact. And that's why, it, et cetera, et cetera. Jim says, if you have a thing for Whitney, just come out and say it. <laughs> 
And Eddie replies, it's that obvious? Uh, so I like that Jim yeah. says what we're all thinking, and we know it's going to be a part of the show. He tells Eddie someone hit him and ran. He doesn't know who. Um, Eddie has a separate lead. Uh, there was an engineer at a recording studio who thought he saw Brian there the night before he didn't show up for this lunch that he was supposed to go to. He's going to meet Jim there. I want to be in on this. Jim replies that he is not going to get his hopes up. But the two of them do appear to come together as we go to both of them talking to Dwight the Engineer. We get a little more about Brian here. So that Mm -hmm. specific night, they didn't like talk or anything. But, you know, he just has worked with Brian on things in the past. He says everything is relative to Brian. Uh, He has this whole story about he got really into organic gardening and he kept on telling me that he was going to bring me tomatoes, bring me tomatoes. And one day I said, hey, where are the tomatoes? And then the the garden was completely dead. There's a, a way that he says it where the Jim and Eddie both kind of laugh. And I was like, I don't get it. Like, there was some joke that he made or some reference that he made. And I rewound it. And I was like, do I not understand the word he's saying? I don't get this. And so I just moved on um, rather than trying to figure it out. This is when Jim sees another pack of those moon cigarettes. He asks, and it turns out that they belong to Chiyoko Takai, a Japanese artist that they're cutting an album with. Uh, She was there the same session as Brian. And he says, we're listening to her right now. And what we're listening to is what sounds like bog standard country country music. music yeah. So <laughs> that's the joke. Mm-hmm. Japanese country and Western. <laughs> Jim asks how he can get in touch. He gets the name of her label and her producer, uh, who is specified to be a Japanese guy named Jerry. So mm-hmm. we know to keep an eye out for that. They leave the studio and he asks what's up. Jim explains all the clues that he saw. Uh, says that in addition to the untouched ticket to Geneva, his bags were there and they weren't packed. So he clearly didn't go on whatever trip he was planning. Yeah. There was no car in the driveway, so he's probably somewhere in driving range. He clearly didn't fly anywhere. So these were all these just clues that were just sitting there at the house. And he's like, oh, I didn't see any of that. (laughs) And so he apologizes. He says he's been so caught up with Whitney and Mm -hmm. he starts going off about how She's like a generational beauty. She compares her to Lauren Bacall and Grace Kelly. Um, And uh, Jim is just like humoring him like, oh, sure. Yeah, no, she's very pretty. And then ask him, what happened when you told her, you know, what you think? Right. I cut the crapola, Jim. Don't patronize me. What? She could have her pick of anybody. I mean, you could see it coming. Guys were hitting on her all over the place. Important guys. And Timmy himself is interested in it, I can tell. I'm sure when the professional part of their relationship is over, bam. Eddie, you're no Rondo Hatton. Why are you chopping yourself? Uh, women don't like me, and they just don't respond to me. You've had some really nice women. Neurotics. I, no, I, I'm just not good looking. Well, oh. Let's face it. Eddie, come on. You're perfectly you're acceptable. No, you're... I'm too short, Jimmy, and my ears are too big. I always have five o'clock shadow. The crown of my head is kind of flat, and it gives okay, my head a dumb that's shape. It. That's all. That's as far as I want to take this conversation. Let's just get right back to business now, huh? I, I need to remember this for the future when I'm in a similar situation. That's it. That's as far as I want to take this conversation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm thinking about this now um, with hindsight. This whole angle is a red herring, right? Um, in one sense, it is a red herring to the mystery. However, what it does do is it puts Jim in front of the the oh yeah the Bernie Selden character who we're going to meet in a minute. That's true. So it has a functional use 
in parallel to the red herringness for the mystery. Yeah. Yeah. So far, we're at question. Where is this guy, Brian? Yeah. <laughs> mystery that ends up not really being related to anything else. Number one, who hit Jim in the head with a rock? Right. <laughs> I think that's where we're at right now. And I guess uh, framing mystery or framing question, what does this have to do, if anything, with the uh, court case that yes. his client yeah. is currently in that that right now is not real? They do not seem to be related. Mm -hmm. But everything everything we've been watching is telling us they will be. <laughs> like, but we've seen six seasons of the almost, you know, five and a half yeah. seasons of the show. And we can assume that there will be related at some point. Also, who is the president of England? <laughs> Which is a, one of the lines to the country music song, I believe is, I don't know the president. Oh, of was England. it? I, I, I did not. The country music had like, I don't know the president of England was one of the lines. Mm. And it's just, yeah, there's probably some jokes in there yeah. for a reason that we'll learn in a second. I got to say, I was doing very little background yeah. paying attention. I was That's just fun. trying to get the broad strokes <laughs> down. Um, so Jim goes to evergreen management. I, as a viewer of this show, mm -hmm. see him in the establishing shot and go, Jimmy Joe Meeker. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> He's wearing the big hat. He's wearing the not not a broad beam hat, but a, like a cowboy hat mm -hmm. and kind of the I have no idea if that's seersucker, but like a shiny suit um, and like Western, like a like a bolo tie. This is, in fact, the last appearance of Jimmy Joe Meeker. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's the wrap on Jimmy Joe. <laughs> I would have to do the legwork. He was in Farnsworth. He was in uh, Never Send a Boy King to Do a Man's Job. Mm hmm. Have we seen another one that he was in? Because this is apparently his fourth and final appearance. We'll leave, we'll we'll do this research on our own. Yeah, time. yeah. I feel like there was another one that we talked about him in, but now we've done like a hundred and ten of these, <laughs> yeah. so mm -hmm. I'd have to go go back to the archives. Um, all right. So he's going into Sal Blundetto's office uh, to try to talk to. I guess that's the producer management. Yeah, he's at the manager's office mm -hmm. and wants to talk to this manager in the office. That manager isn't there, mm -hmm. but the producer, Jerry, is mm -hmm. working on a song with the singer, Chiyoko Takai. Mm -hmm. He's coaching her through pronunciation because it turns out mm -hmm. that she doesn't speak English. She sings her songs phonetically. So she learns the English words phonetically and she does yeah. the country western singing. Jim asks for Sal, and the uh, producer says, he took his secretary out in his new 450. Don't know when he'll be back. <laughs> so there's our second 450 mention. Jimmy Joe Meeker, here from Meeker Enterprises. Uh, he's interested in promotion. He acquired a footwear company in Texas, turned it into a number one supplier of Western boots. Elton John wore a custom pair, <laughs> and sales went up 22%. Jerry says, so you're talking about Chiyoko hyping your cowboy boots in Japan? And Jimmy Joe's like, well, yeah. And I had a phone conversation with Brian Charles about something. And she recognizes the name Brian. Yeah. Jerry says, you're going to have to wait for Sal. He handles all the rights. We don't have time to schmooze. We're working on the. We're trying to work through the song. He wants to know, well, do you know where I can get in touch with Brian because I also want to talk to him about blah, blah, blah. And so we have a gag. It's not really a gag. I thought it was going to be more of a gag. Yeah. He asks her 
And she replies in Japanese, and it goes on for a long time. Jim looks at his watch. Yeah. Looks out the window. And so I thought it was just going to be like, she says she doesn't know, period. Right. But there is more. She doesn't know where he is now. She's been trying to reach him. Last saw him on Wednesday night. Drove him to his place because he lost his license and he doesn't drive. Uh, so, and then she left, you know, later that, you know, early in the morning or whatever. How do you know, Brian? Well, they all met at Bernie Selden's house. Mm-hmm. What does all this have to do with boots? Nothing, Mr. Ito, nothing. It has to do with politeness. The hands across the water and stopping to smell the roses. <laughs> He's leaving, walks past a guy yelling at a receptionist about getting a limo for the Grammys. <laughs> I'm not going to schlep on foot like one of the nothings. And she calls him Bernie. So Jim notices that this Bernie Selden is going to be more important. I arrive at the front door like a mensch. <laughs> we get a portrait of, I don't know, a yeah. certain a certain type, a certain type of golden age media tycoon. Yeah. Jewish guy who worked himself up from the bottom and isn't going to let anyone think less of him because of it. Like that kind of typology. I mean, this is this is kind of like the studio heads in the 40s kind of guys. Yeah. It, it becomes important throughout, but he's he's he is uh, uh, really concerned with appearances more so than with substance. Yeah. Yeah. And no spoilers, but we went later and he's mobbed up. So there's yeah. that aspect as well. Jim goes down the elevator, and then we see Whitney pop out of a hallway where she obviously saw Jim leave. And then she goes to talk to the receptionist. And the camera dollies away, so we can't hear what they're saying. But she clearly is, you know, going to get some kind of information. A little snooping going on. A little snooping. Which is what Jim was doing, so fair play. We cut to Jim looking at a mugshot with Dennis. We get a little bit of Dennis in this episode. Turns out that Bernie Selden is a real kind of criminal scumbag. Uh... He has all these aliases, and Jim says he, like, ran into him once and saw him beat up a parking lot attendant for turning his car on with the air conditioning still on. <laughs> Bernie Selden. So at this point, I thought he was going to have more to do in this episode yeah, than he ultimately exactly. does. But he's played by Stanley Brock, who's a that guy, like, you, mm-hmm. you know. But he, this is his last appearance in the Rockford Files. Oh. We've seen him in There's One in Every Port. Our episode 17. And Never Send a Boy King to Do a Man's Job. Our episode 79. In both places, I think he's part of Jim's crew. He's like one of the comrades. Uh, right, one of the co- of his yeah. crew. He's also in Rattler's Class of 63, which we have not seen. So, haven't closed the book on him yet. But I was like, okay. We're getting there. Yeah. He's that guy. <laughs> Jack Garner appears. Captain McEnroe. McEnroe. Yeah, Captain McEnroe. Reoccurring character, Captain McEnroe. <laughs> uh. Lieutenant, is there a particular reason your friend is going through the mug books? <laughs> and Dennis says, on my authority, Captain. It's a good bit. It's a Rockfordishness moment. It's a very lived-in world yeah. moment where he's like, okay, well, for the record, I was at lunch. And then Dennis tells Jim that <laughs> he's retiring in a month and he's so worried about his pension that he's making sure to keep a tight lid on everything. <laughs> it's good. It's It's very funny. And it is a little bit of a, since they have two two episodes, we get a little bit of room to breathe with, with this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's a fun, uh, uh, what do they call it? When you, you spoil the expectations? Because anytime a senior officer shows up, oh, sure. we're expecting them to dress Jim down, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we're ex- and in this case, it's just like, 
Okay, I just didn't see it. Okay, I don't I don't know anything about it. Leave me out of this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um Dennis says that Bernie Selden has not been seen around LA last they knew of him he's in Miami or something. And Jim says, Well, he's here now. He's planning to go to the Grammys. Dennis, that's the case you're working on? Jim was working on. <laughs> was. Uh we go to a scene in the courtroom where Diane's lawyer is examining a French filmmaker about Mm. her career and about this movie that they were planning to make. They wanted her and they'd had all these conversations. And then she said that she couldn't do it because of Richie um, and pulled out. And there's a good line where it's like, and did the film end up being made? And the guy says, well, we refused to go commercial and uh, knuckle under to a bunch of Italian dentists. <laughs> so the funding never <laughs> came through. Um, okay. So this is Alain. Alain. Alain? How do you pronounce it in French? Alan? Alan? Yeah, I was going to say Alan. So the Florio brothers. Alain and Honoré. They're these French filmmaker mm-hmm. brothers. I honestly... Didn't know there were two people? Well, no, I knew there were two people. I honestly didn't think that this was going to matter. Like, I just yeah. thought this was just, like, f- fun texture for an episode and a half. So I just did not pay attention to their scenes. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Like, we were just saying, they've got room to breathe, and the whole episode feels like they're breathing. Mm-hmm. Which, to some extent, if you got, like, a um, an actual whodunit mystery going on, yeah. you, you want to throw as, as much up in the air for people to be distracted by to keep away. And it literally worked for me yeah. as well. Like I was like, Oh, this guy, like he's doing a little, uh, snooty French thing. That's just the joke. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, like I didn't even know which side of the, uh, of the suit. <laughs> well, yeah, that we were supposed to land on. So Rocky has his opinion about what's going on. Right. Right. Uh, and we know that Rocky's opinion is muddled and, mm-hmm. and whatever. And then we get, Jim's opinion of the rock and roll star. Right, which isn't very high. Yeah, it isn't very high. So I'm like, maybe we're supposed to be on her side. And then we get this this guy. Yeah. Nothing that this guy does in this scene, but it's just... He's just annoying. He's a, Yeah, he's played to, to to be like, I'm the villain. Yeah. Not the, not the arch villain, but like, no spoilers. But like... <laughs> <laughs> he's coded with uh, uh, underhanded vibes. Hold on. I'll tell you what he's coded with. Uh, so I was just looking at his IMDb. He is listed as Maitre D in seven different things. <laughs> like that, that is just his character name. I was just kind of scrolling through this and I saw uh, Rest in Peace, Mrs. Columbo. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the Maitre D in that. This is uh, Jean Paul Vignon, is the yes. actor. Uh, and he's the uh, Maitre D in. Murder a self portrait, which came oh. out the year before, mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, is he? Is this the same character? And I was like, oh no, wait, hold on, no, this is a job, not a character. <laughs> he's just in a major D in everything, but this apparently, and this he's a filmmaker. We see Jim slip into the courtroom, and we see he and Whitney see each other. Uh, yeah. so all our principals are there. We see that Richie does not look happy to hear this testimony, and we go outside. Where he's yelling at his lawyer, uh, saying uh, he doesn't remember that happening. Maybe mm-hmm. at most I said, I don't think it's a good idea, but I don't remember telling her she had to leave London or like whatever the the testimony was. Um, there's this whole scrum because there's like reporters and they're saying no comment. And he has all his hangers on and his lawyer and his manager, Ronnie, is there. And there's this whole <laughs> scrum moving down to the elevator. Jim che- keeps trying to oh. get Richie's attention and this executes a death oh, so maneuver good. where he just... <laughs> 
kind of switches places with Ronnie and physically pushes him out of the elevator right before it closes. It's great because Ronnie, um, again, like you get the feeling that he is conniving the entire time, right? Yeah. Like without getting that feeling, but like, so he's clearly trying to shut Jim out, mm-hmm. right? You're not, it's not entirely sure why, but that's fine. Cause this whole episode's about like, who's responsible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, it just feels so satisfying when Jim gets in the <laughs> elevator instead of him. Oh, yeah. We cut to outside the courtroom with <laughs> Richie going mobbed up. Jim explains that Brian was hanging out with Bernie Selden. He's mobbed up. He owns Evergreen Management. Richie apparently didn't know that. Um, that's interesting. And Jim has a policy to get out when the mob uh, shows up. Uh, Richie has a good line. So what? Hood's in the music business? That doesn't exactly rate with Japan's surrenders, does it? <laughs> uh, Jim says that Brian has disappeared and he's not going to follow him onto a, into the flying saucer. Yeah, good line. I'm sorry. Either you call the police or I'm off the case. Wait, Jim. Don't make a snap decision. I'm sorry, Eddie. Hey, you. You. Think that was cute? You're finished. You're off this case. Yes. <laughs> and Jim says, I know. Here's a copy of my bill. as discussed for a week or parts thereof, (laughs) which is amazing. Uh, Ronnie says, I'll write you a check. And Jim says, I'll take that in cash. And Mm -hmm. so Ronnie tells him to take it down to their production company uh, office. He'll call ahead. Tim and I don't carry cash. There's too much terrorism. (laughs) Eddie says, thanks a lot. Yeah. Eddie's like, I brought Jim into this. And now Jim is making me look bad for recommending him. Yeah. He leaves. Uh, he has a different car. I guess it's not that important. I noted it. I thought it was because I thought he was like, I drive Tim. And then he like is in a different car. Yeah. But it's also like his his job is very ill-defined and is kind of whatever. So <laughs> he probably isn't trusted enough to be in the inner circle. Right. Yeah. And there's there's a bit a little bit later on where I get the feeling that Ronnie is trying to it just feels like Ronnie's trying to drive wedges between Tim and everyone. Yeah, yeah, and for sure. That's that's not the the central point of any of these episodes, but I could see Ronnie putting uh, uh, putting Eddie at like a distance. Yeah, yeah, just being like, you got to drive the other car or whatever. But yeah, um, Whitney comes up to Jim. What's the matter? You look angry, <laughs> Jim. Mister Renegade Lotion and his Flippo Brigade. <laughs> You try to do business with them, you feel like you've eaten a mushroom. <laughs> Good line. <laughs> Again, Renegade Lotion, exquisite. An exquisite album title. Um, Whitney says that you have to understand that uh, he lives on a different planet. Ex- expecting Tim Ritchie to relate to what they call reality is a bit much. <laughs> she asks him about the Brian Charles case. He says he's not discussing it with anyone but his client. She doesn't apologize for being a journalist. She's willing to mm-hmm. take risks and burn bridges. They're a lot alike. <laughs> Our director brothers have appeared. The main one, uh, Alan, sees her. They know each other. He comes up to talk to them. She introduces Jim as a PI working on a missing <laughs> person's case. He's like, ooh, how mysterious. He says they must have dinner together. She tries. To, he invites both of them. Um, Jim begs off, says he's he's not interested, not tonight. So Jim leaves. I guess it's been established that Whitney knows these director brothers. Um so again, just mostly a couple gags. Uh, yeah. But yeah. All right. We are getting towards the end of our first episode. <laughs> Jim is taking out the trash at night and I immediately yeah. go, uh-oh. Yep. 
But the main drama here is that the bottom of his trash bag splits open before he can get it in the trash can. And just another thing on this. Yep. On this day. And then Eddie rolls up with his blaring radio. Yeah. How do you like my new 450, Jimmy? <laughs> uh, so the 450, I was like, what is? So obviously it's a car. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. This was not in the Rockford Files files. I broke my rule and I did look something up about cars because I was like, okay, they just keep talking yeah, about the 450. What's the deal? It's a Mercedes. There's multiple different classes of the Mercedes 450 that were made during the 70s. Trialing for what these things look like. I think it's the 450 SEL, which is the coupe version, not the convertible version. And it was one of the most expensive cars that Mercedes made at the time. That's all I got. That's Well, that's good. I mean, that is clear <laughs> from context, but I was like, okay, yeah. what is the... <laughs> they keep mentioning this car. Apparently it was the Rockstar car, <laughs> at least in context of this show. I don't know if that's a reference that at the time would have been, you know, a reference right. to something that actually was a, was a trend or something. Anyway, how do you like my new 450? Eddie's clearly drunk. Um, when I took delivery this morning, I could barely make the payments, but now I'm fired thanks to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, he threatens to break Jim's face and Jim says, try it. He's in the mood. <laughs> he got tied up in Century City traffic. Uh, Ronnie never called, so he didn't get his money. You could bottle his adrenaline and sell it to so hospitals. Yes. <laughs> Eddie backs down. He doesn't know what he's doing. He can't figure it. Mm. You know, what does his life become? I don't know, Jim. 10, 15 years ago, I used to wear a bowling shirt because I was on a bowling team. I like bowling. Now the shirts are chic and bowling is square, and I paid 150 bucks for this one. And I'd never dream of telling my friends that I used to roll a 300 game. <laughs> it's such a good life. Yeah, I mean, I can remember a moment in my history where I was... I wasn't in his situation, but I was sitting in a very similar, like, especially the early aughts where everything mm-hmm. was ironic and everyone was wearing like, like I'd be going down the street and there'd be people wearing band t-shirts of bands that I like, ironically, one day, and then the next day they loved them. And it was like, what's going on? I don't know what's <laughs> happening. So I can, I, I feel for, for our uh, sad sack, Anthony boy, which is, which is my nickname for Eddie. Yes. <laughs> Well, Jim brings Eddie inside. Uh, Rocky is sacked out on the couch, sees uh, Eddie's shirt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> says, oh, you you bowl? I'm a bowler, too. I bowl in the Oceanside League. And Jim's like, Eddie's not having a good night. Oh, I get it. <laughs> You're coming back from the lanes and things. <laughs> you didn't have a good one. Uh, so good. So Rocky. Jim tries to hint at Rocky to leave and then basically tells him to leave. <laughs> yeah. I love this. this. is a great Rocky line. Well, all right. Just pardon me all the heck. You don't have to go putting me to bed or sending me looking for stomach medicine. I hope you feel better. Ed. <laughs> and another classic Rockford moment where one of Jim's friends goes, he's a nice guy. Yeah, he is. <laughs> Not only did Eddie get fired. Also, he saw that Whitney got the, quote, royal summons up to Richie's uh, room. Yes. And so that was the other blow. He waxes on about Whitney, how great she is. Jim says, that's good that he talked to her. And Eddie says, well, he's just building himself up to ask her to go for a ride in his new car. When Tim comes back down and he's prowling around like he does, he's really bugged. And then he invites Whitney upstairs to talk about a book he's reading. <laughs> so Jim tries to put some brakes on, says, Eddie... The Whitney that you're talking about is an idea in your head. You need yeah. to, like, get a grip. And he just ignores that totally. 
tells him that he's he doesn't even know know Whitney. You're just reacting to her looks, and he says that it's more than that. His body physically hurts because mm-hmm. of what he's been through and thinking about her. She smells like a New England hillside in the springtime, which is a <laughs> <laughs> wonderful description. Oh my gosh. She smells like allergies. That's what you're saying. She <laughs> smells like your eyes itch and you want to sneeze all the time. Uh, he tries to get Eddie over to the sandcastle. We'll have a couple, you mm-hmm. know, before we go to bed. And Eddie's like, you know, I really want I really want you to reconsider taking the case. You can really help me out. I'll pay you back somehow. And Jim's like, don't ask me. It's too dangerous. And so <laughs> a great uh, uh, joke here as they leave the trailer. And Eddie says, how bad could it be? Aren't you jumping to conclusions? Then there's this whine of what we clearly know is a ricochet. Yeah. And he says, what's that noise? Jim says he didn't hear anything. <laughs> and then more bullets. Someone shooting. The canopy starts coming down. This is a very dramatic end of our mm-hmm. episode. Eddie takes a takes a hit in the arm. And mm-hmm. as they try to run for cover behind the 450, Jim takes a shot in the leg. And quite the roll. I don't know if 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 uh, Jim Gardner was well did his stunt there or not, but like that was impressive. I'll I'll talk about it in a minute because there's something about yeah. that. Um, they shelter behind the 450. Uh, it takes a couple hits. We see like the radiator gets shot or something. Yeah. It gets quiet. They're waiting to see what happens next. They hear the car peel out. They see the car shooting away, and then we focus on Jim as he goes. Why in the leg? <laughs> Freeze frame. Yeah. To be continued. Good. It was an entire origin story for the limp for the second <laughs> episode. <laughs> um. So apparently, I mean, he was, you know, this is the season where he was in increasing pain. Yeah. You know, having increasing trouble uh, moving around uh, to do stunts and stuff. Apparently what happened was doing this dive hurt his knee. Ah. So they wrote in the leg shot. Um as the you know for the text of why he's limping and he also was limping around because he hurt his knee doing doing his own stunt poor jim poor jims both of them poor jims all right so we end that episode not really knowing anything more (laughs) yeah i mean this is the thing right like we it ends on a nice exciting note yeah we know jim's in danger or I guess, or possibly Eddie. Yeah, but. somebody. Um, but there's no, there's very little forward momentum from the audience point of view, right? Yeah. Like we've gone down some things that all just feel a little dead endy, yeah. you know. And uh, it, like you were saying, they had room to breathe, and they did breathe, and I enjoyed the what they did with that room, right? Yeah. Like there were good gags, there were very good character interactions. Everyone was like handling the scene. I loved just watching everyone interact with them. Like mm. anytime Ronnie entered a room with his big Muppet arms <laughs> and big Muppet face. Yeah. Yeah. And like Eddie, like those conversations where Eddie's talking about Whitney, they are long. He is going on yeah. diatribes, right? Yeah. He is spinning this whole web of fantasy about this woman. And it's a significant amount of screen time. And, and like, I would write a few of those things down. And then I was just like, I, whatever, Eddie. Like, I'm with yeah. I'm Jim on this now. you got to shut up. Yeah. All of that, that bit has has some fun payoff in the next episode. Uh, but it's in the next episode, right? Yeah. There is a problem in this being a two-parter. Not, not like a horrible, insurmountable problem. And obviously, from the year 2023, when we could, at our leisure, watch them back to back or whatever, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, this is a, a, a movie-length thing. 
But we are at this point, and it does stop, and I'm going to pick up the next day to watch it. And I definitely have this moment where I'm like, what? What happened? Like, what? <laughs> yeah, there's something. So clearly it's a cliffhanger ending, right? Where it's like, yeah. there's action. Jim's been shot. What's going to happen next? Yeah. And like, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but yeah, there is kind of, a, I think like, I think saying there's no feeling of momentum is exactly right. I'm tuning in next week because, well, I haven't watched the, the rest of it yet. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I'm not like, I can't wait to see how they answer this question. Or like, yeah, what is going on with that? It's kind of like, well, I guess that the mob's involved. So I guess we'll find out more about that. To the show's credit, the second episode brings all that stuff forward I don't want to say you could just watch the second episode, but maybe you can. I think you can just watch the second episode. I mean, you lose some of the you lose some of the character fun because yeah, you don't yeah. watch it unfold in real time. Yeah, I was just thinking that maybe and we need to move on and talk about the second episode. But yeah. I think so. The episodes that are one long episode that got, got broken up for syndication. I wonder if I extend them a little grace because like, well, it's supposed to be one long story. Right, exactly. And you happen to watch it in two pieces. So, of course, there's going to be some stuff that like you have to wait to see what happens. While something where it's like, here's part one and then here's part two. I'm like, well, part one didn't really wasn't very satisfying. It's like, well, yeah, you have to watch part two, you know, <laughs> like. Like, obviously. One of the areas where this was done well, and people can go back and re-listen to our episode to find out if I am, if I've changed my opinion on it. Uh, but Gear Jammers, right? Yeah. Like, the mm-hmm. two episodes of Gear Jammers are very different from each other. There's still the same mystery. And, uh, like, the thrust of the first one is, like, what is Rocky doing during his day? And Jim <laughs> right. chasing Rocky down. And then the second one is the mystery itself. And that was a great cohesive narrative to break on. Yeah, I kind of remember it that way also. Also, uh, the, the the trees, the bees, yeah. the trees, and TT flowers, where yeah. I don't remember if that was a long one broken up or if that was two individuals on purpose. Uh, I don't recall now, but again, there was a really satisfying action sequence at the end of the first episode where they broke yeah. them out of the hospital or whatever. And then the second episode was like salt, like resolving the situation. Yeah. Um, that felt like a satisfying standalone episode. And then you got to watch the rest. To be fair, we're doing a Rockford Files podcast. <laughs> and unfortunately, that means that the Rockford Files has to stand up to the Rockford Files. <laughs> and I wouldn't wish that on any other television show. So <laughs> True, true. All right. Well, we should go ahead and talk yeah. about the second episode. We are going to take a little break in the middle of our episode here so that we can stretch, maybe get a beverage or a snack. And talk about the other places that you can find us on the internet. Epi, if our listeners want more Epi, where can they go to get Maximum Epi? You can find uh, me at my website, digathousandholes.com. That's dig1000holes.com. Or you can get my sword and sorcery fiction and games at worldswithoutmaster.com. That's worlds, plural, master, singular. If you want to engage with me on the social medias, the best place to go right now is Mastodon at Epidia at Dice.camp. Nathan, if they want to get Maximum Nathan, where do they have to go for that? I should have gone Maximum Nathan. Maximum Nathan can be found at my website, ndpdesign.com. That's the hub for all my stuff on the internet, including all my uh, role-playing games, zines, and other podcasts. Uh, So if you're interested in pro wrestling detectives Mm -hmm. or zines about pro wrestling, (laughs) (laughs) among other things, um, those are all at my website. 
It also has links to contact me in other ways. Currently, I'm still um, posting on Instagram at ndpaoletta. That's where I'm posting pictures of my dog. Uh, you can also find me at cohost, cohost.org slash ndp. That is a fun, small-scale social media site that I'm enjoying quite a lot. And now we return to the continuing adventures of Jimbo Rockfish. Jimmy, this is Dora. I'm going to move in with the kids, but I'll sure miss you, dear. Thank you for taking out the garbage every week. I'll send you a card for your birthday. Should, should I do an opening montage? Yeah, well, as 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 usual for two-parters, we start <laughs> yeah. with another opening montage. Yeah, and uh, this is it surprised me that it was, and I don't know why, I don't know what the pattern is, I should know at this point, but I was like, this is not a previous on, this is an opening montage. I think in past, they sometimes just do a previously on instead of an opening montage. Yeah, I don't remember. But uh, basically, I get uh, Eddie's getting angry. Whitney is putting Jim's life on the line for a story. We get that all kind of spelled out for us. And then, oh, no, not the Firebird. (laughs) Yeah, not the Firebird is my note as well. Uh, They talk about bootleg copies of the record is the other thing that I was like, oh, okay. So there's some plot going to happen. We then move into the recap, (laughs) which I'd say hits all the high points. I was kind of watching it with an eye of like, is there anything that's emphasized in a way to set right. us up? I mean, obviously it chops up the timeline, but like, I feel like it just kind of gave us the, the high points yeah. of like the story so far. Some of the good gags, yeah. uh, some understanding of relationships. Uh, we get the flying saucer line again. Why in the leg we ended yep. on, which is great. The thing that I want to point out, um, and this matters to no one but me, huh. But that we get the the chip and the salsa again. What are you What are you doing with that salsa, Jim? And I think that's the setup for the payoff that's going to come in a moment. Well, we have uh, four and a half minutes of recap, which again <laughs> uh, feels like a long time by contemporary right. standards, um, but is you know is fine. We have our titles over Jim and Eddie uh, getting out of a cab back at the trailer. They've clearly gotten patched Mm -hmm. up. Eddie needs to call his auto club. Somehow they managed to blow the doorknob off of the trailer. So they have to go in through the bedroom, which I love that. Yeah, I thought that was going to be more of a thing. Like they were going to get jumped when Mm -hmm. they get. I mean, you and I at this point, I can't imagine Jim's normal day to day life at that trailer (laughs) without him just like, what's that? What's that noise? (laughs) You have to remember that, like watching him work is like once a month. Right. Yeah. (laughs) It's always a a dry spell between his jobs and stuff. Uh, but yeah, I do love that we get the bedroom door, which I think has been at least mentioned or hinted at yeah. in other He's episodes. He's gone out of it sometimes to like yeah. sneak around and stuff. It's always fun to see his bedroom because it's like yeah. always slightly <laughs> different. Uh, so Jim is not going to hang around waiting for the cops to get off their bureaucratic <laughs> duffs. He's going to put together a package on Bernie Selden to take to the cops. Mm-hmm. Jim's assumption with no real reason not to think otherwise is that, oh, this mobbed up guy tried to hit us. Yeah. Eddie says, he mentioned in the last one, he got fired and he has two weeks to find a new job or whatever. So I guess they are extending him two weeks of being fired, which is not usually how that works, but whatever, that's fine. Uh, The point is, he says, you can bunk with me at the castle. He doesn't call it the castle. I call it the castle. But you can can bunk with me for the next two weeks, at least if you don't want to be home. I want to just mention the gag. Yeah. Look, my car's broken down. I need a tow. 29 Cove Road, Malibu. Jimmy, 
What's your nearest cross street? The Pacific Ocean. I don't know. Uh, there really isn't one. It's just 29 Cove Road. <laughs> um, Jim is asking Eddie if he told if Eddie told anyone that Jim was going to go to Evergreen Productions. Eddie says he didn't tell anyone other than Richie. What about Whitney? And he kind of blows up. I would never discuss the case with her. And Jim says, OK, I believe you. No hard feelings. Eddie asks, why would Selden be concerned with Jim? And what we all want to know, where's Brian? Yes. <laughs> I think at this point we've seen mention of a murder, at least in, in each preview montage. Yeah. So as an audience member, I'm like, he's dead, right? Yeah, right. Like, we we, we could all agree that he's dead. Yeah. And Jim gets there at some point, I think. Mm-hmm. So where's Brian? Yeah, where is he? <laughs> Jim doesn't know, but... But Richie is showing a lot of concern about a guy who sounds like was a real pain in his neck, right? Because mm-hmm. we've gotten these stories about how Brian didn't like what he did with the record. And he was, we kind of get the sense that he was fighting with Richie about other things. And he wasn't, you know, just, they weren't on the yeah. same page about stuff. He put a disco track on there. Surprise disco track. <laughs> Surprise disco track. Uh, and also, Richie didn't seem surprised about Selden being like Selden's company being evergreen. Mm-hmm. Something about that. Plus there's a $2,000 account to settle. Yes. Um, Eddie doesn't want to confront Richie. Cause so Jim's kind of implying like maybe Richie's in on whatever is going on. Mm-hmm. Like I want to get my job back. And Jim is willing to put Eddie's job up against his own neck, which is a good Jim rock. Yeah, that uh, is good. <laughs> uh, Eddie. Oh, who cares anyway? Job, money, joy. <laughs> says without Whitney he's it's like he's in a dark room with no windows and he might be better off dead and Jim replies you coming Heathcliff yes <laughs> that one I understood right a reference to the cartoon cat yes the cartoon cat <laughs> that's the that's what Wuthering Heights yeah good good job there was a Brenda Star Ace Reporter reference earlier that was referenced a couple times I'm like I'm sure this is something I did not look it up I don't know who that it's an old comic okay. and I think it's been made into a movie a few times or whatever but it, it it is what you would expect it to be all right so we have the rest our, our main credits uh over the firebird as mm-hmm. jim and eddie head back to the castle we get jim limping and a line about how he was shot in the leg they're trying to find richie he's in the room he has a special room he has a little garret up at the top yeah where he goes to to, to compose his songs and be alone and do his creative thing He's not supposed to be disturbed when he's in the room. Good. Then he'll feel like an innovator. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie tries to warn Jim off, but Jim knocks. Richie's incensed that someone would dare interrupt him, but he tells Jim he'll meet him on the patio. We crossfade to Jim on the patio talking to Richie with uh, Ronnie in the background in another amazing outfit. Our hero, Ronnie. Jim says that someone is trying to kill him and Eddie. Are you going to clean it up or just let what happens happen? Yeah. Uh, Jim has a beer. We know that because he's holding a can that says beer on it in giant letters. Yes. I love the generic beer in the show. I had a beer count for this episode <laughs> because it, the same. I saw the generic beer and I thought, oh, that's actually you don't see that that often in a Rockford Files. And then he continues to have beers throughout this episode. <laughs> oh, get the screenshot. Yeah, mm-hmm. there it is. <laughs> so, <laughs> Oh, good. <laughs> the expression so on his good. face is also very yeah. good. Oh. Okay, Richie comes clean. Well, I guess R- Ronnie gives the details, but yeah. Richie's like, okay, 
you know, here's what happened. Renegade Lotion shipped platinum, which that's what, a million records? Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I feel like it doesn't mean anything anymore. So Renegade Lotion shipped platinum. So, you know, they, they shipped a million records. 300,000 bootleg copies hit the stands at the same time. It costs his label $1.4 million. A master disc was missing after Brian visited the pressing plant. So Ronnie's saying, like, Brian leaked the album. And uh, Richie is like, well, look, we don't know that. So we see that mm-hmm. there's a dynamic there. Yeah. Why would he do that? Ronnie says that Brian's a jealous, spiteful person. And Eddie, or God, see, I got so many names. And Richie says, Tim Richie. Tim Richie. Yeah. The worst part of it is that he's got two first names. Yeah. So we got Jim and Tim. We got Richie, Eddie, and Ronnie. Anthony Boy, who's not in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and then Selden and Brian. All right. Richie is like, well, I, I, I put the disco track on there. I think that sent him over some kind of edge. Like mm-hmm. he just couldn't deal with it uh, for some reason. I don't know why he would have would have made him do this. He didn't know about Evergreen Productions, but the news did confirm his suspicions. So the picture they're putting together with what Jim knows is that maybe Brian leaked the record to Evergreen and this guy. Right. Bernie Selden is the one who made the bootlegs and and, and got them into distribution, right? To uh, bite on their release. Apparently the mob likes this business. This is good mob business. Yeah. It's easy money. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim, do you want to call the police or should I? Richie doesn't want to, but Ronnie says, why not? Brian sold you out. Give him the spike. Yeah, total Ronnie. Absolute Ronnie. Richie, he's in the middle of the court case. The press will be all over this. A big high profile, you know, scandal in the middle of the case. He doesn't want to. He leaves. Ronnie's still there. There's a beat. <laughs> my, my, my. Wait until Whitney Cox gets an earful of this chit-chat. <laughs> oh, she'll have a field day. Just last night, Tim was telling me that she was... Bugging him about Brian and Evergreen Management. I don't even know how the hell she found out. <laughs> and Jim slams his beer down. And he <laughs> looks mad. And Ronnie gives him this great look and just... Oh. Oh, say, guys, did I say something wrong? Darn this silly mouth of mine. <laughs> so Roddy, so Roddy. It's, yeah, it's pretty good. At that and at that point, I was like, "Oh, okay, he knows exactly what he's doing." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Eddie and Jim go back to the Firebird. Okay, fine. I did mention you were going to Evergreen. I didn't think it was important, and then I didn't tell you because I knew you'd take it the wrong way. Jim is, you know, mad because he got lied to, and also now he's putting together why he's, you know, someone's coming after him with a gun. He's trying to build a probable cause for an attempted murder. If that gets in the way of Eddie's fantasy, too bad. <laughs> we have a peak of the Jim-Eddie conflict. Jim, he gets the name of the hotel that Whitney's staying at. Eddie's like, you know, but you be you be nice to her. She's special or something like that. He says, yeah, yeah. Well, it doesn't take anything special to sleep with a dozen guys to get an angle on a story. Yeah. And as he's bending over to get into the Firebird and Eddie just kicks him just <laughs> right in the ass. <laughs> You're talking about the woman I love and then kicks him in his wounded leg. <laughs> and we get the the the, ang- the real mad uh, yeah. Rockford anger, which you only see every so often. Uh, and Jim punches Eddie in his arm wound. <laughs> he keels over and then Jim gets in the firebird and peels out backwards. Out of the way, turkey. 
<laughs> so my notes are cheap shots all around. It's just there's a lot of good fight choreography in the Rockford Files, and this does not disappoint. <laughs> this is right up there. All right, Jim goes to talk to Whitney. Uh, he kind of tries to deny what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you got this info from Eddie, and then you're following me around trying to break your story. She says, well, that's an untruth. And Jim says, but not a lie. Yeah. And then this stuck out at me just because it's like anti-Rockfordishness. This is where he goes all Sherlock. Yeah, where he like yeah. <laughs> makes fun of people for thinking this is the kind of thing that he does. Yeah. She has this pair of like high-heeled boots sitting on the on the ground. And he picks them up and says, this is the same kind of mud that was mm-hmm. in, in Brian's yard. You were the one outside the, you know, the house. And, you know, you're the one who hit me with a rock. Yeah. Uh, my theory here, because he, he says this is a, I don't think he says this is a unique blend or something like that, but he, you know, kind of has that. This is a particular blend. Yeah. Yeah. Or something. My theory here is that this is him laying it on so that she admits it. So yeah, like probably he just notices mud on her boots and mm-hmm. is like, okay, I'm going to find out. And, and instead of it being Rockford understanding, uh, yeah, being a topsoilologist or whatever they're <laughs> called. Uh, it's got to be a word for dirt science. Anyways. Yeah, dirt scientist. Dirt scientist. One of them dirt scientists. If you're a dirt scientist, yeah. please okay. uh, ring us up with, the, with the, the appropriate way to address you, your majesty. <laughs> well, I will accept that as a yeah. more uh, consistent read. Yeah, I was shocked to find out that she's the one who beamed him with the stone. <laughs> I Not only that, but I just barely remembered it happening. Which is <laughs> Well, okay, so she said that it was an accident. She was trying mm-hmm. to throw it over him to distract him so that she could get out of there without yeah. him seeing her, and she just dropped it on him instead? <laughs> also, he was on the ground. Yeah. Like, he, he had tripped over something at that point. Yeah, this isn't a lot. Like, I think this is what happened. Like, in the story of the episode, this is what happened at that moment. She tried yeah, to throw yeah. the rock, and she just wasn't good at throwing a rock. Yeah. It just feels, I don't know. It just feels weirdly first draft to me, I guess. It's like, yeah. really? This is a whole thing? Because it doesn't come up. It's not like Jim's been like, and I need to find who hit me with that rock. Like, it's not like it even, like, came up again, really. Like you said, we've, I forgot about it until he started mentioning, talking about it yeah, again. exactly. So it just feels weird that it's in the episode. Anyway, unless it's like a joke about how she, like, can't throw a rock, which. It's possible. That- which is not a good joke. Yeah, I, I don't want to get too into it, but there, there's definitely a read of this episode that makes it a little, little, little sexist. Yeah, yeah. I think if you don't go with that read, uh, like, for instance, Jim is making comments about her sleeping around. Later on, she's going to make comments about her sleeping around, and it's not a big deal. Right, right, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit of a gag, but it's not a, you know, like a... In that scene, I think it's more he's saying it to get under Eddie's skin yeah, yeah. more than anything else. Yeah. I, what I'm saying is that I wouldn't put it beneath, you know, this episode to be like, the joke is she can't throw a rock mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. But nonetheless, we've spent more time than the episode did. So she finally, she does admit she's been falling around. She just wanted to feel out um, Bernie, see what's mm-hmm. up with him. 
She asked him if he knew why a PI had been hired to look into the disappearance of Brian. And when she did that, Bernie kind of blew up at her. And mm-hmm. so Jim's like, oh, so there's the connection. That's how he knows to come after me. She agrees to go down to the police with him to explain everything. And that's when Eddie arrives, all, <laughs> all panicked and out of breath, to warn her that his friend Rockford, oh. And then he asks tough it's so it's very funny she's like you know i you got shot he's like (laughs) it's like i'm okay my my wrist will be numb but that's how it goes yeah they tried to give me pain pills but i don't believe in that kind of stuff (laughs) jim's smile during all this is is priceless but she says that jim's right she's fouled everything up we gotta we should go explain on the way out jim says to eddie you rushed over here to warn her but you stopped to change clothes (laughs) So we go to our uh, our principals plus Dennis confronting yeah. Bernie Selden while he's getting measured for pants for the Grammys. <laughs> Bernie says, of course, he was upset. Uh, he was upset that a PI was misrepresenting himself in his office. He claimed to be some big Texas, you know, promotions man or something. Mm-hmm. And and Dennis gives Jim a little look. <laughs> like Dennis knows Dennis knows uh, Jimmy Meeker. Yep. He tells his tailor that he's going to the Grammys, not a bris. <laughs> um, Dennis asks, you know, very sober, you know, policey questions. And we get Selden says that Brian and he were social friends. They had a shared business interest in some painter. So they talk about that occasionally. But that was all. And that the night that Brian uh, disappeared or or the night that Jim, whatever, one of the whatever night they're asking about, he was alone. Mm-hmm. alone at home no one to uh, give him an alibi and jim's like oh of course we're gonna believe that and he has this like hey you see that knob turn it pull <laughs> bernie's full of good little short short bits he says to whitney this is what i get for being cooperative with the press and she says well you were being very cooperative when you said what is it you said this is the kind of publicity that money can't buy <laughs> um it's like well you're gonna get my company linked in print to some piracy scam uh you think I don't know how things work in rags like the Knickerbocker? <laughs> Clearly, this isn't really going to go anywhere. And Dennis ushers everyone out. Yeah, good for Dennis. Good for Dennis. We go to an outside patio where Jim, Whitney, and Eddie are having some lunch and talking over the whole thing. Beer number two. <laughs> I think she has a salad while they're waiting for what turns out yeah. to be a pizza that they're getting. Eddie uh, realizes oh, that Whitney hasn't gotten her glass of wine and goes, that creep. I'm going to go straighten him out. There's uh, the timing was great because they were they might have been talking about Selden. They were talking about someone. And, well, they and, say like one of them says like, "But where's Brian?" And then yeah. he's like, "That creep." <laughs> so, and it, yeah, it's good. He leaves, and then Whitney and Jim talk about Eddie for a few minutes. Whitney says he's a nice man, just a little morose and quiet. And Jim comes to his defense. Actually, he's a firecracker. Eddie. But yeah. Yeah. You know, he's top man on the uh, prison variety show. Told jokes, played blues harmonica. You take him to parties, he goes into orbit. What's wrong? Has there been a death in his family? (laughs) Jim explains, since you're asking, he's really taken with you. You never noticed? Uh, No, he doesn't even look at me. I thought he didn't like me. Is this real? (laughs) And Jim just sighs. Oh, so good. (laughs) Look, I wouldn't usually do this. But I'm taking this chance since I hate to see him so unhappy. He's, you know, he's really into you. You should know. And she says that she has noticed a certain virility in his walk, <laughs> a certain animal energy. 
I love Jim's line about like, do you think I set people up? Nine times out of ten, it's sucker bet. That's great. Says, well, he's no Tim Ritchie. When he says, unfortunately, I wouldn't know. <laughs> and so Jim's like, oh, I kind of assumed. And I think, you know, he is going to keep going further with that. But then Eddie returns with her wine. And I like her response here where she's like, thank you, kind sir. <laughs> yeah. She's opening herself up for more positive yeah. interactions, just like yeah. off the bat. They get back to business. A cheese pizza arrives while they talk. Um, the only one we see eat any of it is Whitney. There's a gag about like her getting some sauce on her mouth. Yeah. This will come up. This will be important later. <laughs> At some point, she pays Ronnie the greatest compliment Mm-hmm. But at some point in this conversation, she says that Ronnie, our friend, mm-hmm. with the big, big limbs and the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Our Muppety friend. Ronnie has the sexuality of a pocket calculator. <laughs> and uh, I, I can only assume <laughs> that this is this is one of the greatest compliments that... Um, of all yeah, time. Anyways, yeah, anyways, <laughs> I could let that go, go by. Well, Jim says, okay, what the police need is a body to establish probable cause. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll get lucky and also find Jimmy Hoffa. Ah, a reference <laughs> I got. Yeah. <laughs> but Jim says, what if he never left his house? He didn't drive, as we've learned. Uh, he wasn't packed for the trip. He never used that ticket. And as Jim knows from falling down in it, the soil in his garden was freshly turned. It wasn't all dried out like what we've been told. If he really lost interest in this thing, why would it be like fresh yeah. soil? Eddie thinks it's worth a shot. Whitney thinks it's a long shot. Selden's too savvy for that. And we end the scene on Jim giving her the little, you got something on your mouth, napkin yeah. motion. I'm starting to justify the first episode now. Because mm-hmm. this is where a lot of these breadcrumbs are coming together, right? Yeah. And uh, now having go- watched it, and then gone through it, uh, I'm like, oh, okay, all right. This is groundwork that was laid by, mm-hmm. by things that felt like red herrings or... or It's never a red herring in the Rockford Files. It's always, you don't know what he's getting out of this scene. Yeah, yeah. But it'll show up later. Jim's right, but, but his assumptions are wrong. Yeah, yeah. And Whitney's right, but she doesn't know it. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I'd forgotten about this. Her line that Selden's too savvy for this. She's not wrong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we cut back to, to evening. Jim and Eddie are digging. Uh, Eddie says she should stand back in case Jim actually finds something down there. And she's like, don't worry about me. I've seen some things. I covered a, a gang war in New York and et cetera, et cetera. And then she asked Eddie for his jacket. You don't want it to get ruined. <laughs> it looks like a Ventino. Yeah, I think he's the best. Wonderful material. Yeah, I think the days of the unconstructed jacket are numbered. (laughs) (laughs) Jim, we are digging for a man's body here. (laughs) Just as Whitney says that she thinks they're digging for nothing, Jim gives an uh uh-oh, pulls a broken pair of glasses out of the hole, and then uncovers a face. And Eddie says, that's him. That's Brian Charles. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Later that night, back at the castle, Jim is trying to find Tim Ritchie. He's holding a Western Union envelope addressed to him because apparently it was sitting on the door. He's limping all around the castle. Um, He goes through a room where the TV is on and there's a a news story about the body's discovery. Mm -hmm. Uh, Finds Ritchie in his special room. 
Jim's there because everyone has to pay their bills. We we get the internal life of the of the rock yeah. star right in this scene. So the special room I think is important in that it is the it's like a monk's chambers, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's compared to the rest of the, so we we get another tour of the castle and the decadence of the castle. Do we see like the twins are just asleep? I think they're a, I think they're passed out on yeah they're passed out in front of the TV that's playing. Yeah, yeah. Everything about this screams you know. Uh, the palace of a decadent emperor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we get to where this emperor is, is his private room. And it's this cramped little thing at the top of the tower that looks, that it's got like an Elvis Presley poster on the wall and a old phonograph. It's a record player. Why did I call it a photograph? <laughs> An old Victriola. No, it's a, just like a record. But like, um, but it is an old record player because it's yeah. from. He talks about it's Brian's from when they were teenagers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, his personal retreat in the castle is something very sparse and mm-hmm. very uh, small, and just has like a few significant items. But that's it. Like, it's not a a recording studio or anything like that. Yeah. And he says that he's not supposed to care about money. You can't be singing songs about anarchy on one hand and be checking bank statements with the other. (laughs) And I think Jim asked him, well, how do you explain those two coexisting? Like, you are very rich and you sing songs about anarchy. Uh, He says, I tried to tell myself that it's because I have contempt for it all. But (laughs) that doesn't really hold. I don't I don't know. A little moment of personal honesty, like my interpretation of it, right, is like, well, you you dance, you dance with the one that brought you. Yeah. Especially in a creative field, like (laughs) that's what ends up happening. People want to hear the hits. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he has some cash on him. He can get the rest downstairs to pay Jim the $2,000 he owes him. Uh, Jim gives him the the telegram. It's from the Western Union telegram. It's from Diane. It's expressing sympathy for Brian's death. Richie starts waxing nostalgic about Diane and mm-hmm. how she was when they first met. So that Brian was clean then. And then he starts talking about Brian. And I think, you know, this comes up as text, but it's clear from the beginning where it's like, he's really shook. Yeah. Uh, and he's going through his memories, going through his relationship with Brian, maybe trying to see where it went wrong, trying to see if there's anything he could have done, but just being in a state of like grief. He's grieving. Yeah. Yeah. He says, you know, what's funny is Brian was going deaf. And so he tried to do things that weren't like rock and roll for a while. He did like a bad rock opera in New York. And then he moved to London to score movies. But he couldn't stay away. Couldn't stay away from rock and roll. Mm -hmm. So the the fads come and go. Disco. I think he says like disco, reggae, something else. (laughs) But all Brian wanted to do was stay up until 4 a.m. playing Johnny Be Good until his brains popped out of his ears. Uh, he has a stack of 45s from when they were 16, and he has Brian's record player that he had over his parents' garage, dreaming of impressing their high school with their, you know, high, with their music when they finally came back at a reunion or something. I mean, most people go back to their high school reunions. They're overweight, frustrated, unmemorable. You? You've got this big house on the ocean. You're still alive. You, uh going to be remembered always by the people back home. So what do you want from life? Huh? Putting green? You're going to miss him a lot, aren't you? That's what it always was, wasn't it? The adverse publicity, the rationalization that you gave me. And the truth of it is, you really cared a lot about Brian. You didn't want him hurt. 
I blew the chance to ever tell him, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah, you did. Those things you said, is that how you felt at your high school reunion? No. No, I always kept myself in pretty good shape. I've got my big house on the ocean. Big house on big wheels. Besides, I was in prison at the time. One of my notes during this scene that apparently was a note to future me, I just want to bring up, it just says, this two-parter has a lot of time for long character scenes. Yeah. And I don't hate it. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that, like, because, you know, earlier we were talking, the first episode ends and it's just i think this episode not necessarily really redeems it but like i liked this scene right yeah i like this scene too could we have had this scene if it was one episode probably but at the expense of a lot of other things more condensed yeah yeah this scene this is the first time where i like got interested in richie as a character yeah i honestly just didn't find him very interesting the whole rest of the time which is kind of for two episodes like we're almost at the end here yeah and like it's you know you get to see the interiority of the of the you know of the artist yeah. and the humanity that he still has yeah. even though he's still separated from day to day concerns of most people that is a valuable thing and it's a, and it's well done but it's also like this is the kind of the last we see of this character yeah and I just didn't care about him until the scene and then he's gone <laughs> that's uh, not great. Just- just like Brian. Just like Brian. The works on levels. Levels. <laughs> I just like how this goes back. Okay. So Jim has a dance with everyone who tries to hire him mm-hmm. where they, they don't give him all the information he needs and he knows and he tries to quit and blah, blah, blah and all that. And this scene does a good job of like establishing why Tim Ritchie behaves towards Jim, why he hires him and then is very off-putting with him yeah. when it comes to all this stuff. And I like that. Like, I, like, cause that's, that was, that was a problem. It's like Tim Ritchie hires him to do something and it puts Jim in front of the crosshairs and it's not clear what's happening or why that's, you know, and he's, he's been very uh, reticent to tell Jim anything. And it's because he's, he's got this deeply emotional, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and his whole reason for hiring consciousness. Him. Yeah. So anyways, uh, just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, I think, yeah, it it retroactively explains a lot of the dynamic for sure. Um, We leave the Garrett and Eddie and Whitney are standing there. Whitney with the obvious wires. (laughs) Right. We have a close up on her tape recorder actively going. Um, They say that they just wanted to tell Richie they're sorry about Brian. Uh, He kind of says, thanks and goes downstairs. Jim goes to follow. But before he does, he... Uh, pointedly <laughs> takes the tape out of Whitney's recorder and then gives her the okay fingers and walks away with it. And then uh, downstairs, he gets the rest of his money. Mm-hmm. And then Jim thinks that Eddie's still behind him, starts saying, hey, let's go out to celebrate and mm-hmm. turns around and Eddie and Whitney are out on the patio talking by themselves. Yeah. So Jim leaves. Cut to Rocky watching gruesome news stories <laughs> as Jim is providing taco night. Boy, it's nice to have a meal at home after four days away. So, all right, I appreciate how he <laughs> got paid two thousand dollars for four days of work. Yeah, that is a good Rock for Files payoff. That is that is a great Rock for Files payoff. So, tacos, we get the big payoff. 
Jim sits down and just spoons salsa, like several big spoonfuls of salsa into the taco. Finally, Jim eats the salsa. For two whole episodes, I've been frustrated by Jim's lack of salsa consumption, but we're here. We're good. And his third beer. I'm sending you another screenshot. Oh, oh, good. <laughs> yes. Yes. Some good Jim tacos. Well, I'm glad that the salsa mystery has finally been solved. And he's just saving it for like the right... Because here's the yeah. thing with salsa, right? <laughs> it's all about proportion. I myself am a low salsa liker. I Oh. I like a taste. Mm-hmm. I don't like a big chunk. So I like a thinner salsa, more of a salsa verde, not like a not like oh, a paste okay. picante. Right. You know? Yeah. Well. Oh. Now. Okay. Hold on. Now. I'm sorry. Am I? Am, am I bringing two things together that shouldn't be in conversation? <laughs> I'm just saying that not every chunky salsa is a paste. <laughs> well, I just mean that 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 density, right? Okay. All right. All right. Sure. Sure. It can be. It can be like a fire roasted. You know. Okay. All right. Like organic store brand which is what i would usually buy it's usually pretty good made with corn in it or something but like the chunky one yeah i prefer more of a saucy one okay you do a dip mm-hmm. and then it's gonna dribble off if you have too much so you tap it so, so you do, do tap it i don't i wouldn't say i tap i would scoop but then i would bring it out vertically so that it doesn't have a pool okay and yeah. then i would chomp but if i have a taco then i'm pouring it because there's something in it right for the salsa to sit in Mm-hmm. And you get the combination of flavors, you see. So, so I'm, I mean, definitely, that is definitely the taco way. Like, that, mm-hmm. it's absolutely. But I am, I will take two chips and put it into the salsa and hold them together and just shovel it down my throat. I have never had gazpacho, which is weird because mm-hmm. you would think, given what I just described, yeah. that that's the meal I'm looking for. Right. See, if I want that experience, I get that from a guacamole. Yes, See, that's I good. use a chip yeah. as a as a as a as a small surface upon which I can pile the guacamole. Yes. yes. And get as much of that into my mouth as possible. Because I just want a little bit of the crunch and a little bit of the extra salt from the chip, but I really just want a spoonful of avocado <laughs> with all the you know good stuff in it. Yesterday mm-hmm. I had uh yeah, some vegan tofu pups, right? Mm-hmm. Or or smart dog, whatever. The yeah. the really cheap kind. Um mm-hmm. Uh, if you're vegan and you're, or even if you're not vegan, if you're looking for a nice tasty hot dog, uh, field roast Frankfurters mm-hmm. are, are great, but they're not what I would do this with. So I had that and then Gardein's, uh, chili with beans mm-hmm. poured yeah. over top of that, but I had it on a bed of corn chips mm-hmm. so that as mm-hmm. it slipped around on the outside and then, and then just like a ton of onion mm-hmm. and, uh, fig cheese on it. But anyways. I'm just saying I had a chili dog yesterday nice. and I loved it. I recently had a what I would call a chili nacho, which is mm-hmm. where we had some uh, we had some veggie chili that my dad made. Mm-hmm. So I don't know exactly what all went into it, but it was vegetables and it was delicious. And so I constructed a uh, tortilla bowl of, you know, a, a bowl with tortillas in it. Yeah. Chili, some more tortillas, chili. And oh, then nice. I did put, I actually do have some vegan cheese, but I did put real cheese on it because I was just microwaving it until it was hot. And that was not going to melt the vegan cheese. (laughs) So that's a a very, very akin to a Frito pie. Yes, yes. It's similar to a Frito pie. One of my favorite dishes. So I'm using big, you know, big triangle tortilla chips and not Fritos. But yeah, it's the same idea. Anyway, this is the important stuff from this episode. (laughs) All right. That a boy, Dennis. Dennis did it. Um, so first there's update on the trial. Mm-hmm. Richie didn't show up to court today, and there's speculation about why that was. Diane's lawyer is claiming premature victory. Mm-hmm. 
Jimmy's his taco. In related news, charges of grand theft and copyright infringement were filed against <laughs> Bernie Selton. And that's when Jim goes, good job, Dennis. <laughs> Apparently, they found documents in Brian's home definitively linking Selden yeah. to the to the bootlegged albums. And, and he's going down for that. However, the police have no leads in the attempted murder of, uh, you know, one of Richie's, uh, you know, employees or whatever, <laughs> and an associated investigator. And Rocky's goes, that's you. You made the six o'clock news. <laughs> It shows you how far gone Rocky is yeah, so to good. this. Um, Jim, we see that Jim ha- has a thought. Yeah. He tries to call Whitney. They, She's not at the hotel mm-hmm. and uh, she hasn't picked up her messages for since yesterday afternoon. And so Jim's on to something. He says, they don't say that the police don't have leads unless they really don't have anything. Yeah. So why would Selden murder Brian? If he's such a valuable resource, why would he stop that from happening? All hell broke loose when Whitney Cox started dogging my footsteps. Mm-hmm. She spilled everything to Selden. What if she did the same oh, yeah. with the Florio brothers, mm-hmm. the French directors? He's going to Eddie's. <laughs> uh, Rocky goes, hey, don't leave me eating alone here. <laughs> Jim leaves. And we end the scene with Rocky taking a big bite of his taco and returning his attention to the six o'clock news. To the warm glow of the television. Okay. Yes. I really completely forgot about yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> this connection. I mean, I did have that thought of like, so why did he kill Brian? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, they had a disagreement or, you know, whatever. My notes are, so wait, this is about the divorce trial? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But yeah, at least this scene, which at this point, I because I wasn't watching the time, I was like, oh, okay, I guess we're wrapping up the case. Would, how is it? And then Jim takes us further into it, so... Uh, and not only does he take us further into it, but there is uh, there's now uh, um, a tension in the scene, right? Like we're worried now about Whitney uh, and what what might happen to her. Jim goes to Eddie's. There's a there's a moment where you're like, what happened? And then Eddie does come out. He's mm-hmm. wearing his boxers. <laughs> Whitney was there, but she left just half an hour ago. Mm-hmm. And Jim gives him an up and down mm-hmm. of what he's wearing. <laughs> yeah, and he's like. All right, cool. (laughs) So Jim lays out his speculation. What if the Florio brothers killed Brian, then sent someone after Eddie and himself? Mm -hmm. Brian was scoring movies in the early 70s in London. So this is all relying on remembering the scene with the testimony, you know, where Alan was testifying that in 1973 or whatever was when they were looking to cast Diane and they were talking to her when she was in London. Um, Eddie says when they were watching the six o'clock news, presumably the same broadcast that Jim was just watching, the part that was covering the trial Mm -hmm. gets to uh, making the picture, you know, trying to cast the picture in London. And that made her sit up and she left. She was standing outside Richie's room when Richie told Jim about Brian went to London and was scoring films. Yes. Eddie was preoccupied, so he doesn't remember. Suppose that the Florio brothers' testimony was spurious, was bought yeah. by Diane's defense to establish cause for her to win this, to get this suit. And then maybe they're getting paid a cut of the settlement. Brian was in London at the time, so maybe he knew, and Brian knows Diane, so maybe he knew Diane was never considered for this role. So the Florio brothers see Brian as a threat to exposing their lie 
yeah. on behalf of Diane. On Stan. Right. And so he thinks, and now Whitney probably left because maybe she saw, she made those same connections and now she wants to break the story. <sighs> okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now we've solved the case. We're good. For some reason, maybe it's because of the two episodes and there's like so much time in between. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because there's other things that I've been paying attention to. I guess it's not like this is uncommon, right? The, the, mm-hmm. These plots often have a scene where Jim explains the connections to someone so that he puts all it puts it all in front of us. We've gotten here and yeah. this is... Um, yeah. In case you weren't paying attention or whatever, right? Or like just, or to reveal a connection that we didn't yeah. know before, but he do, he figures it, out. It was originally broadcast television, so right. you may have just been in the bathroom at the time, or you know, right. whatever. So this is not an unusual structure, mm-hmm. but for some reason, I found the chain of logic to be so tenuous, right? That I just had trouble buying it. Like I'm like, I know he's telling it to me. Mm-hmm. This is the scene where he tells me what's going on through speculation. Yeah. So as an audience member, there's no reason for me to doubt that this is the story. This is the story. This is what's yeah, yeah, written yeah. down. <laughs> this is the plot of the episode. But I'm like, I just don't buy it. It doesn't feel like it. Hang- like, I mean, it hangs together logically, but I just don't. It just doesn't seem that important. <laughs> Am I being uncharitable with my read? No, no, I, I agree. I feel like... It's not like a huge thing, but I do feel like the the French uh, filmmakers are their motivation is underbaked. Mm-hmm. Like if we even had a dollar sign on a, a you know like a dollar amount on how much they were paid to say whatever they or said. Like or, their recent film was such a bomb that they're in incredible debt. Yeah, and now they're going to get a five million dollar payout if she wins her suit. Right, because they killed one person who. Might, Again, tenuous connection. Like, it's not clear how they might have learned that this person... Well, anyways, it's not that Brian and Tim Ritchie's uh, friendship was a secret to anyone, right? Right. So why, when they hatched their plan, they didn't think, oh, wait, this guy would see right through it. Tim yeah. Ritchie's best friend who hangs out with them all the time would know. and But neither that nor that's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. The other bit is that like they need to be motivated well enough, not only to commit one murder, but to start a series of murders. They're about to start a series of murders. Well, to they already under- attempted. Yeah. They attempted yeah. another two murders. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that's the thing. That's so that's who shot at Jim and yeah. Eddie are, I mean, presumably honorary cause he seems to be the, the gunman. Yeah. So if they showed him as, like, a typical Rockford Files thing to do would be to show this guy as, like, flying off the hook. Mm -hmm. or But we don't really get him at all before now. We get a couple shots of him, and he does seem like the hot-tempered one. Yeah. But there's another nuance to it where it's like, given what we know about what was happening with Brian and Richie and selling out Richie to the mob for money for the counterfeit scam mm-hmm. in the in the diane richie brian triangle brian currently seems like he's aligned against richie right right he's doing yeah. things to undercut richie so you'd think he would be able he'd be an easy sell on just to pay just, him off or just something. pay him off or or something and now now i'm just reading in you know now i'm just doing headcanon stuff where it's like maybe the intrinsic connection between like maybe Diane knows that Brian and Richie 
at, at their core are always going to align together and right but she's not in on the plot to kill him she finds that out in the next scene so it's like i don't know i for it doesn't know why yeah i don't know why i find finding this so unsatisfying is like really bothering (laughs) me and i don't know why so i think we should just move on because i'm yeah i'm i'm fixating on on this when (laughs) in another episode i'd be like yeah it doesn't really hang together whatever let's keep going so in our next scene whitney is interviewing diane and she keeps bringing it around to talk about Brian. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess in context of, oh, he just discovered, you know, we just found out that he's dead. Uh, you must have known Brian after he left the suspects, after he went into exile in London. How was he then? Um, we see Honoré coming into the room, I think, with groceries. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he hears Whitney asking about Brian. And mm-hmm. Diane's kind of is saying, like, Diane ha- has stood up and has her back to Whitney and is saying, you know, we were never really that close. Yeah. I remember I sent him money a couple times because he needed some help, but I'm not really sure, you know, something. Honoré sneaks up behind Whitney. He has a gun and mm-hmm. he hits her in the back of the head and knocks her out. Then Diane turns. Yeah. Sees what he just did and goes, you killed Brian? That wasn't part <laughs> of the deal. <laughs> so I appreciate that she puts it together immediately. Yeah. Uh, but that wasn't part of the deal, right? She doesn't, she didn't know. Like, yeah. In on it. She's not in on it. We go to Eddie and Jim and the Firebird. Whitney must have tipped off the the brothers when she went to dinner with them. The dinner that Jim decided not to go to. So maybe this all could have been avoided. I think Jim says, like, they must have played her like a fiddle or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eddie wants to tell Jim something. The night was <laughs> incredible, but... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he says, maybe it all started going wrong when we got dinner from Ricky's Rip Ranch. <laughs> see where this is going right away. <laughs> you get sick? No. It's just hard to stay turned on when somebody's got dried barbecue sauce in the corner of their mouth and on their chin, you know? There's something about the color of that sauce. Eddie, do I have to listen to this? <laughs> Eddie goes into excruciating detail about how their night was progressing and everything was great. But then she wanted to get something out of the icebox and in the light of the refrigerator bulb. And there was just no sexual spark. (laughs) The appeal to me was strictly looks. I was taken in by appearances. Now, Eddie, I tried to make that clear to you. This is more frank discussion about sex than, like, the... Entire run of the show. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The whole rest of the show combined. Yeah. And it's the most un... I mean, I think this is very well well done, well framed, and well acted. It is the most unappealing. Like, you feel Jim being like, please stop talking to me about this. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I don't want to know. It's it's great. It's very funny. It's very strange. Bright, good-looking person like her with a lot to offer if she wasn't so messed up. How could you think that way? She could have it all. That was so could you, Eddie. So could you. You know, you give power away by the shovelful to people you don't even know. Yeah. And it plays into this thing about Whitney's character that is... Uh, so Whitney obviously has investigative skills, right? Like, mm-hmm. she knows how to follow a lead. She knows, you know, she has a good nose for news and whatnot. Uh, and But she's oblivious to, uh, to the fact that Eddie liked her, right? Right. Um, and she was oblivious to the mess that was on her face when Jim asked her early on about like, you know, the article she's doing. And she just kind of talks about Tim Ritchie's being the sexual or the sensual icon of his age or whatever. Um, 
it wasn't I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. It was more manner of factly. It was more academic right, right, than yeah. anything else. She didn't really and, sound like she's attracted to him. Yeah. And yeah. like in a little while, we're going to get like her rundown of her sexual experiences here. And they all kind of have this same sort of thing where it's just like. Um, it's kind of clinical, kind of yeah, alienated. Yeah. And I love it. I love it. Like that her character is this like. Uh, just there's this whole part of the world that is completely open to her that she doesn't navigate well at all. Like, that's it. Well, we have some action music as Alan rolls up to Diane's. He sees <laughs> Whitney's car, um, hears yelling from inside, mm-hmm. and then he goes in and he's uh, yelling at Honoré, you were supposed to stay away until the trial was done. He says, all your life you have been betraying Marx, and now you do the same to me. <laughs> They're supposed to be, like, pseudo-leftist like, yeah, yeah. intellectuals, <laughs> I guess. I feel like this is, again, a very of-the-time, like... Gag. Yeah, yeah. Like, a, like a French avant-garde gag, I, yeah. I imagine. Anyway, they have to do something about Whitney. And that's when... Uh, oh, no, okay, so this whole sequence is intercut. Alan arrives at Diane's. Jim and Eddie arrive. Jim parks. They see Alan and Whitney's cars. Mm-hmm. And then, so they know that they're both there. And then we hear been betraying Marks, et cetera. Um, and then we have to do something about Whitney. And that's when Eddie runs in with a pipe <laughs> <laughs> and attacks the brothers. Henri has a gun in his hand, <laughs> shoots him. <laughs> it looks like in the leg. <laughs> And Jim comes around the other way, knocks out Honoré with a punch and takes his gun. And Alan is pushed past the stricken Eddie. Eddie tells Jim, I'm okay, I'm okay. And Jim runs out in time to see our uh, our, our, <laughs> our French director gunning it backwards directly towards his firebird. And he even says, turn left, turn left. <laughs> yes. And then he just slams his car into the firebird. Not my car again. <laughs> I will... I will say uh, I noticed this and then I saw that it was on IMDb. So I felt uh, absolutely not special at all. But I did notice that the car, the Firebird had already been banged up Mm. before. They might have done like a couple scenes of it backing up in in one of the like or they might have had a banged up Firebird for when this car ran into it. But like the shot of it backing (laughs) up, you could see that the Firebird had already been hit by something. So, yeah. Well, maybe that's why he says again. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> All right. We have our last scene of our two-parter uh, yeah. here at the Sandcastle. Jim and Eddie. It looks like a big plate of seafood, I think, to me. Yeah. Maybe it's a salad. It's hard to say. Yeah. Jim has a big plate of something. In- indeterminate food. <laughs> yeah. It has small pieces because he holds one on his fork for half the conversation. <laughs> Eddie is there, but he's, as he says, yanked off at Jim because he told Whitney how Eddie felt about her. And Jim is incredulous. He has a good <laughs> Jim Rockford. I can't believe this. Um, <laughs> if if Jim hadn't said anything, nothing would have happened with Whitney. And he's like, that's true, but I don't want other people interfering in my love life. <laughs> so the other part of the earlier conversation and now a little more now is that now that he's gotten to know her, he doesn't like her. <laughs> Right. Like he's like, she's self-centered. She has all this like baggage from childhood. (laughs) You know, all she talks about is herself, like all this stuff. But he's still mad at Jim for interfering. Right. Uh, So, you know, again, I think I said portrait of the fractured psyche. Right. Like Eddie really (laughs) has 
he has a lot of different things going on that he needs to work out. Uh, they see Whitney approaching across the parking lot. Uh, Jim <laughs> mentions, oh, I left her note for Rocky saying where we were. And he says, I'm maxed out with that lady. <laughs> yeah. And he sneaks off before she can see him. It's it's great. Jim says, oh, you just missed Eddie. And when he says, that's fine. I'm here to talk to you, Jim. <laughs> She's going back to New York. She just wanted to thank Jim for what he did. And she wants to get her cassette back. Mm-hmm. And Jim has this great oh, song and so dance. Good. The other night, the whole Rockford clan got together. You know, we sometimes do that. And my dad got out his squeeze box. And, oh, we played, uh, oh, the dust on Mother's Bible. And will the circle be unbroken? Amazing Grace. You know, all the old favorites. And I wanted to tape it for my nephews. And, well pluck that I am, you know, I tape right over everything you had. <laughs> you are no cluck, Mr. Rockford. <laughs> All right, and we are going to end our episode on, as you said, on a on a deep exploration of her sexual uh, exploits. exploits. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Because he says, well, even without that, you have enough to do a great write-up on Tim Ritchie, plus you have the whole sexual angle. Yeah. And she says, That's, you know what's funny about that? I came all the way out here to you know, see if I could find out for myself. And it didn't happen with, with Tim Ritchie. And then she goes through. So I, I hooked up with his bass player. Right. And <laughs> he wasn't Tim Ritchie. And then I found this roadie that I really liked, but he wasn't Tim Ritchie. And then she says that during her their last interview, he, she was doing her last interview with, with Ritchie. And he started playing with her hair. And she was finally going to get what she wanted. <laughs> And he wasn't Tim Ritchie. Yeah. <laughs> Freeze frame. End of episode. I feel like a callback to um, Jim's. Well, I mean, like this, this is the conversation that Jim's been having with Eddie the whole time where he's right, like, right. She's not a real person. She, you've made her up. Yeah. that That's the theme, right? Of our, of the episode. We've witnessed it from one end. We've seen Eddie go through the entire cycle of having her as this fantasy of his and then discovering the reality was just doesn't match what he had in mind yeah. and could never. Right. And that's the thing. Yeah. Like, it can never match the fantasy. And then now we are discovering right now at the end that she has been on the same journey just with yeah. a different person. So, um, two episodes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I mean, I will, I will say probably fundamentally a little bit of a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. um, I am on a line where I could argue either way. That it holds together or it doesn't. Like, you know, there's certain parts of it. This arc that we just mentioned, Eddie, Whitney, mm. uh, I don't want to call it a romance, <laughs> anti-romance, whatever it is, uh, is great. Like, I really enjoyed that. And uh, I like how that plays out. The mystery is a little um, mysterious. <laughs> it's just a little vague. Yeah, yeah. We kind of get from here to there, but it, um, there's not... There's, yeah, there's not a lot of energy in it. It just doesn't, you know, aside yeah. from being shot at. Uh, but the jokes were good. Like, I really enjoyed, like, some of the gags. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, the jokes are good. Character moments were great. The casting's good. Yeah. But also, uh, we should talk maybe a tiny bit and then <laughs> end this long episode. Uh, Wired's contribution to this. This is our uh, final Wired, right? Yeah. Okay, so clearly I found some parts of this one a slog. I do want to praise many aspects of these two episodes. I think the casting is really good. The jokes are really good. Even though I feel like there is a greater than usual separation between character scene and plot moving forward mm -hmm. scene. Uh, 
I really enjoyed each of the character scenes. Yeah. So that stuff is all good. And yeah, I think I, my overall sense, and then we'll talk about Ward. My, my overall <laughs> sense of this one was that it was a little, I don't want to say lazy because that's too pejorative. Right. It was a little lackadaisical in the structure and the writing sure it was kind of like you know what i'm interested in this this uh romance anti-romance thing Mm -hmm. the portrait of this uh rock star how jim goes about um breaking not one but two mysteries or solving not one but two mysteries uh you know and I have, and here are some good gags that are in here along the way. And a little bit of meta commentary about like the pernicious influence of, you know, news media diet that we're fed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that stuff's all in there and it's great. And then the stuff that holds it all together is kind of like, yeah, like this happens and this happens and this is why this happens. And, uh, we all know what we're doing here. Like it's the rock. Right. <laughs> like everyone's going to do a good job. Yeah. It's going to look good. It's going to sound good. Uh, we're going to get some custom songs. Uh, you know, let's go have fun. And then it just doesn't feel considered in the same way that some of the great episodes yeah. really feel considered. Okay. Yeah. So. I agree. I'm done being critical. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, Mr. Wired. Let's talk about Mr. Wired. Uh, you think because I brought it up, I'd have something pithy to say. <laughs> Well, I was kind of struck by how this one, unlike some of our more recent ones, was a very uh, uh, restrained visual palette. Like, it was pretty straightforward. There are some good, like, match cut kind of things. Yeah. Um, I think the music is is placed really well. Um, Some fun cinematography, uh, like, as they're approaching the castle. Like, I did make a note of, like, when um, the shots were were uh like hey let's let's just enjoy yeah malibu or or mm. or what have you there's some really good celebration of space in how mm-hmm. he like yeah like you said going through the castle even watching jim go around brian's house in that first scene yeah and, like pick stuff up is kind of like a ooh, we get to watch him do detective things yeah. both of those are under the credits right yeah mm-hmm. which is interesting uh yeah i'm not sure about the castle well when when he goes up to the castle in the second ep, i think oh, that's yeah in the, during the credit run yeah. yeah 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 and i think that's pretty i mean you know they're in a great location for appreciating yeah. you know the visual f- splendor i think that is something that i i hesitate to say that there's any signature ward things because he's such a journeyman and like yeah. everything is like just solid everything's just what it needs to be for the for the episode um i do think when he has the chance to kind of do that slightly more cinematic celebratory framing kind of stuff he takes advantage of it yeah uh, for good and and for ill sometimes (laughs) as in um uh, return of the black shadow yeah but we talked about this in um heartaches of a fool how the camera really does a lot of work to the camera uses the landscape of LA at the end to, you know, push the emotional resonance of that whole final sequence. And yeah, uh, with the Willie Nelson song and everything like that kind of stuff is he, he is able to take advantage of those moments. Yeah. Yeah. This, this episode, uh, you know, we, we decide on the horror. Uh, we chose this one last because it was a two-parter. Because <laughs> it was the longest one, and we put it off for as long as possible. Yeah. So we didn't make any conscious choice of, of like, a, a good showcase episode for right. him. Yeah. Uh, but 
every episode is very competently done. Like, mm-hmm. uh, there are definitely showcase episodes for him. Probably not these, yeah. this two-parter. Um, yeah. But, yeah, uh, it's been fun to, like, dive into. I You know, I, I don't often think about who's, who's directing this episode that mm-hmm. I'm watching, right? Like... I do now of the Rockford Files. Like I, the, this, this yeah. podcast has, has trained me to do that for the Rockford Files, and occasionally, like if I'm watching a Columbo, I'll, I'll do it. But like if I'm watching anything else, it just kind of goes by me unless uh, it's a it's a name that I right. really yeah. recognize, and um, it's been fun kind of realizing, hey, wait, here's this mm. <laughs> here's this uh, director who has had quite a big hand in in the series, right? right? Like, yeah. Um, yeah, almost a quarter of the series, basically. Yeah. Yeah, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, you know, and of course there's going to be with that wide of a with that wide of a, a, a portfolio, some are going to be more interesting than others. Yeah. <laughs> some are going to be more creative than others. Um and so maybe we will use this as a chance to take a slightly mm-hmm. more holistic look <laughs> at the Wardiverse. Did I say Wardiverse? Yeah, I I keep doing that too. <laughs> We're tired. We're tired, not wired. <laughs> so maybe we should take this opportunity, since we've done all of them, mm-hmm. to take a more holistic look at the Wirediverse and finish off our summer of Wired with a little bit of a... Yeah, here we go. <laughs> <clears throat> and this is this is coming co- completely off the dome. We haven't talked about this at all. <laughs> a rewired retrospective rewinding through the Wirediverse. Yes. <laughs> you can You can see what that means. Uh, when we come back to you next time to talk about 26 or so episodes of The Rockford Files. Wired, 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 wired. We did it. We did it.